Yes. You're testing that. Th you're testing that theory whether you can play a movie on your back. No, my wingspan is not big enough. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, how do you work that? I don't know. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by two of our competitors for tonight's scaffold match, twin sons of different mothers, Adorable Alec. Aw, thank you. And Jubilant John. Yay. <laughs> the Podcast Express. How's it going tonight, guys? Knee deep in holiday prep? Yeah, lots of that. <laughs> for sure. I put up lights yesterday. Oh, yeah? But I've had my tree up since November 1st. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> you got to distribute that a little bit and mm -hmm. eases the workload. Tonight, we're going to take a look at Starcade 87, Chai Town Heat. It's uh, alternately, apparently titled Glory Bound. Can we go with that one? I, I kind of like that better myself, yeah. And that's the one the announcers reference on the show. But it's definitely labeled Chai Town Heat on the box. And I think Tony says it once. So it's got two different titles yeah. because they couldn't get organized, I guess. They have a thing for Chai Town. There's like two other shows called that as well. Yeah, yeah. Once again, there's been an interesting development over the years since the last show. In 1987, Jim Crockett Promotions purchased the Universal Wrestling Federation, or UWF, from its owner, Bill Watts. Formerly Mid-South Championship Wrestling, the UWF had been rebranded in an attempt to make it into a national promotion. Now, we've heard of Mid-South before. It was one of the promotions that Turner invited onto TBS after the WWF's Black Saturday debacle. In March 1986, it was rebranded as the UWF to attempt to take it national. By April 1987, however, it was clear that the UWF wasn't going to be able to compete with Jim Crockett Promotions or the WWF the latter of which had just had its biggest success yet with WrestleMania three, And so the UWF went looking for buyers, and in walked Jim Crockett Promotions. The UWF, interestingly, was kept running even after the purchase, continuing to run until December 1987, shortly after this Starcade. Unfortunately, this purchase wouldn't turn out that well for Jim Crockett Promotions overall. Jim Crockett Promotions generally treated the wrestlers and titles that had been part of the UWF as beneath their own talent and titles, and thus, surprisingly enough, fans didn't really care to see angles revolving around a lesser promotion's stars. That might sound familiar if you watched the Invasion angle starring XWCW wrestlers in the WWF in 2001. Which I did. Yeah. Yep. There are a few bright spots around the purchase, though, as some UWF wrestlers did break through in Jim Crockett Promotions. Some of them will feature heavily on this show. Rick Steiner, Dr. Death Steve Williams, the fabulous Freebirds, Eddie Gilbert, and most notably, the man called Sting, all come from the UWF, and all of them feature on Starcade 87. All told, the purchase and the way it was handled contribute to the financial trouble that Jim Crockett Promotions will soon find itself in, but more on that after the show. So big developments there with the UWF buy. Yeah. I think it's generally regarded as kind of a poor choice on 
Jim Crockett Promotions part, but it's kind of hard to fully criticize it since it, since it does bring us sting. Right. <laughs> Let's think happy thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Starcade 87 was held on November 26, 1987, in the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, Illinois, in front of a sold-out crowd of 9,000 fans, though 8,000 paid. In addition to closed-circuit airing, which I don't have the numbers for this time, it was also held on pay-per-view for the first time. Unfortunately, 1987 was the year that Vince McMahon of the WWF decided to play hardball with his biggest competition. He created a special WWF show, the Survivor Series, to go up against Starcade on the very same night, then told pay-per-view providers that any provider that aired Starcade would not get to air the next year's WrestleMania. Now, it's important to understand that in March of 1987, the WWF had aired WrestleMania 3, which brought in about 400,000 pay-per-view buys and earned what I understand were record revenues on pay-per-view. So most companies caved to the demand and didn't air Starcade, going with the proven earner over the pay-per-view rookie. They did, of course, also warn McMahon to never, ever do that again, but the damage was done. Starcade 87 came up with 16,500 pay-per-view buys. Well, the 1987 Survivor Series, aired opposite it, came up with 350,000. Okay, let me see. 350,000. Carry the thing. That's a lot less. (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. Just over 5%. (laughs) Okay. In the year to come, the companies will schedule against each other many more times, most notably including the creation of two great series, the WWF's Royal Rumble, which is created to oppose Jim Crockett Promotions' Bunkhouse Stampede, and Jim Crockett Promotions' Clash of the Champions, which is created to oppose WWF's WrestleMania IV. As for Starcade, well, this is the last year that it's going to be held in November. Uh, it will move to December next year to avoid clashing with the Survivor Series again. And as for Jim Crockett Promotions itself... Big changes are on the horizon, but we'll talk about those after the show. The show opens as lights sparkle over the crowd as the show logo appears, accompanied by new Starcade music, and we cut to a really awesome-looking announce desk with a cool star design on front as Tony Schiavone and new announcer Jim Ross welcome us to the show. Good old JR will later become famous as part of the Attitude Era's WWF announce team, and he's definitely on the short list of best wrestling announcers ever. He's actually another import from the UWF. So again, I know it's often regarded as one of Jim Crockett Promotions' worst financial decisions, but it's kind of hard to criticize it much when it brings in Jim Ross and Sting. (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Huge upgrade in, in general for the feel of this show. It feels huge with the the way the lighting's used now and the the upgrade to the announce desk and a more formal official kind of look to them than they've had in the past. It just seems like they've put a lot more effort into dressing things up, which I appreciated. You don't like wrestling in the cafeteria? <laughs> I I'd prefer that it be uh be treated as a big show when it's, you know, a big show. I do kind of miss them not announcing behind someone's science project board. Yeah, or in the first show. And it was funny when, uh, funny still having the people walking behind their window in the second show and tapping on the glass and everything. But <laughs> but uh, it, it, I think it's a, a big upgrade in their presentation this year. No doubt. Our first match is Sting, 
Michael P.S. Hayes and Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, accompanied by Precious, versus Eddie Gilbert, Rick Steiner, and Larry Zabisco with Baby Doll. It's a six-man tag. Basically, the buildup of this is part of the whole UWF versus NWA slash JCP, what do you want to call it, promotions. Notable is that Sting unofficially defects from UWF, which is kind of pointless given they're the same company at this point, but it's just so he's on the face side against the three heels, essentially. Yeah. As part of the buildup to the main event match with Ron Garvin, they had Jimmy Garvin save his quote-unquote brother, because they were brothers in kayfabe, from an attack by the Four Horsemen. That's, he's now a good guy. Yeah. That's why he's not the cock arrogant heel he was last show. So, yeah, I understand that Sting and Eddie Gilbert were kind of a pairing when they were in the UWF, it sounds like. Correct. Which, which makes sense, because Eddie Gilbert is apparently from every girl's dream, according to the announcer, and Sting is apparently from... Every man's nightmare. Yep, every man's nightmare. That's one of the best intros. Mm-hmm. I think we can agree on that, right? Is he is he your nightmare, John? Um, well, not anymore. <laughs> oh. Freddie finally replaced him for you? <laughs> it's always going to be Michael Myers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or Captain Kirk, if you go by the mask. Yes, true. Sting, Hayes, and Jimmy Garvin come out to Bad Street, USA, but I'm pretty sure that was dubbed in for the uh, network version. Yes. Because I don't think they were using that song at that point. Yeah, they used they used Freebird. Yeah, I'm not sure if they were still doing that now, but I I, I would imagine they were. They did they for a in. long yeah. time, so it's hard to yeah it's hard to say when they changed, but I'm guessing it was Freebird. Yeah, probably still playing. <laughs> that solo is still is, going. Yeah. yeah. Sting already has his really really awesome shiny coat, and he is already doing his awesomely loud stinger call. Mm-hmm. He kind of already feels like the the sting that we know later on, which was pretty cool, considering this is his first big Jim Crockett Promotions appearance. Eddie Gilbert has really bizarre Statue of Liberty sunglasses that I just don't know what was going on with those. I guess he's playing up the rivalry between New York and Chicago? I, You know, that might be it. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I would have just worn like a Yankees jersey, but, yeah. you know, that looks less stupid. But to each his own. <laughs> yep. Rick Steiner and Sting start off, and Steiner hits clotheslines on Sting as the others get to their positions. Sting ducks a third, and Steiner tumbles out through the ropes, and the camera mostly misses Sting diving over the top rope to land on Steiner as he tries to get up. You're off to a great start there. Yeah. As they get back in, Sting nails a dropkick off the top, and all six men come in to brawl, with Sting, Garvin, and Hayes dominating and the others bailing outside. They take positions again, and Sting, Garvin, and Hayes trade off, keeping the advantage even as the other side trades off between Steiner, Zabisco, and Gilbert. Eventually, Steiner manages to get Garvin into the heel corner, and the heels team up to beat him down. They keep Garvin away from his corner, and Steiner goes for what I thought was going to be a belly-to-belly suplex, but ends up being a bear hug. JR tells us that Steiner has a tremendous wingspan, and you could show movies on his back. <laughs> Yeah. I, I guess you could. <laughs> Not sure it'd be the ideal movie viewing experience, but... Yeah, that's an odd take on a cinema, cinema obscura there, but... <laughs> Turn the lights down, I guess. The beatdown continues, but Garvin finally escapes a Zabisco abdominal stretch with a hip toss and tags Sting, who beats up all three heels as JR calls him a superstar. 
A Zabisco eye rake stops that, and Gilbert comes in and flings Sting over the top rope while the ref is busy with Baby Doll. Sting is in trouble, and the heels trade off fighting him, but Sting won't go down, reversing their biggest moves and escaping their holds. He gets a tag to Hayes as time is running low, and after a flurry of offense from Hayes, everyone comes in and JR tells us it's breaking down in Chai Town. <laughs> I thought that was actually a pretty good line. <laughs> Hayes almost takes the win with a bulldog on Zabisco, but Zabisco gets a foot on the rope. A Gilbert double axe handle gives Steiner an opening to actually hit his great belly-to-belly suplex, and it all breaks down again. In the melee, Hayes gets a sunset flip on Gilbert, but the ref counts one, two, and visibly pauses, as clearly they mistimed things slightly, and he has to wait to make sure the bell interrupts just as he's about to count three. It's a time limit draw. Post-match, Sting hits an awesome stinger splash from halfway across the ring on Steiner. Welcome to the company, Sting. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) That was a big dive. Yeah. It's one of those ones where I really like all of it. It's just they don't give it an ending, and I really don't know why. I really can't critique too much of the actual match. I mean, Sting looks great. Hayes is fine. Everyone's good. Everyone does their roles in their own ways. I just, I can never truly rate matches very high when there's no actual ending. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just me, though. I mean, it's, I can't get around that. Otherwise, it's really good. Oh, I I like the moonwalk, the impromptu moonwalk uh, from, uh, I guess, the, the UC, is it UCW? UWF? The UWF. Okay, sorry. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, lot of There's so many promotions. <laughs> the, uh, the Nestle-sponsored guy or whatever. I don't know. Um... Anyway, I liked the 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 moonwalk and uh, had the most casual tag where he just you know um, in the very beginning he just like sits down and holds his hand up and hopes for one of the other two oh, yeah. to tag him. But you know it was nice to see Sting and it was nice to see a familiar face from uh, my video game years. Playing. Yeah. What did you feel about the time limit draw? Did that detract from it for you, or was it okay? Well, I think when you have that many people in the ring and there's they're really trying to show uh, an amalgam or trying to bring everything together, I think they I think it was a good vehicle to get everyone some floor time and not have anyone lose. Even though normally I would be like, uh, but I think it accomplished what they were going for. At least okay. I hope that's what they're doing. Yeah, I can see that. I will know I just thought about this. This is two years in a row of time limit draw matches with Jimmy Garvin. Point. Yeah. <laughs> Is that like his thing, I guess? I oh, maybe. For actual. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was a pretty nice introduction, like you were saying, for, for a bunch of new wrestlers. Almost everyone in this match was someone we haven't seen before on the show. Only Jimmy Garvin is someone we've actually seen wrestle before. Yeah. So it was, like I said, everyone gets a really nice time in the spotlight, and it felt like it was a nice pace for the match overall. There's no real slowdown spots other than the honestly brief bear hug from Steiner. It kept moving, and I felt like it used all six men very well. Sting and Steiner got to look particularly impressive in the match, and the commentary really focused on building up those two in particular, though everyone got at least some time in focus. You can immediately see why the company thought so highly of Sting. Mm -hmm. He has tremendous energy and is already connecting with the crowd, and it doesn't hurt that he pulls off dynamic spots like his dive outside and the Stinger Splash. But everybody worked hard here, and it came off well. For my part, I do think the time limit draw ending drags it down a fair amount. But it doesn't ruin the match. No, no, yeah. not at all. But I just feel like, considering the company's clearly high on Sting, I 
wonder why they didn't feel they could just give him a solid win, for instance. Put that stinger splash spot on Zabisco or Gilbert instead of Steiner, since it seems like they're trying to build up Steiner too, yeah. and give him the, the three count at the end. Doesn't hurt the match that much, honestly. And like you said, John, it's a great way of showcasing everybody and protecting everybody. So it does it does work. I will say we need to mention Rick Steiner's jacket, though. His uh, jacket that just has Gremlin on the back of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Because I know from watching later shows, his nickname is the Dog-Faced Gremlin. But if you just saw this show and you're just wearing a jacket that says Gremlin on it, what does that tell you? He's a fan of the Gremlins franchise, I guess. I feel like it's about the right time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's enough on that one, but... Yeah. I just that's Out of context, that makes no sense. Yeah. Also, just to put this match in perspective, this is Sting's first Starcade. He's been in the company for just a few months now. In about four months, he's going to be challenging for the world title at the first Clash of the Champions. Mm -hmm. That is a meteoric rise. Yeah. <laughs> Sting's uh, challenge for the world title. Uh, Hayes actually leaves for WCCW, or World Class Championship Wrestling, based out of Texas. My understanding is, so UWF is not based in Texas, but it's does a lot of business in and around Texas. A lot of people came from the area. Yeah, I think actually it worked heavily with WCCW for a while as right. well. It's just kind of funny to me seeing him leave for the other company, because he goes to UWF, they get bought out, and he goes back to Texas for a different company. Yeah. He must like it there, I guess. Yeah, you know. Oh, and uh, the one thing I had to mention, so in kayfabe, Jimmy Garvin is Ron Garvin's brother. And, you know, you look at those two, clearly they're definitely related. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite as convincing as the uh, Arn and Ole Anderson thing, is it? Yeah. So, interestingly enough, in real life, there is a connection between the two of them. Jimmy Garvin is Ron Garvin's stepson. Oh. That is weird. Right? <laughs> yeah. That is 100% true. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> We go back to the announcers, and Tony and Jim talk up the performance of Hayes, Garvin, and Sting, and throw to Missy Hyatt, who is standing in front of the kind of cool NWA logo they've got backstage this year. It has kind of uh, the smaller N and A and this big W in the middle of it. It looks pretty neat, I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, she tells us that we've seen one great match, and we've got more to come, including the world title match. And that's the only time that we'll see her on this show. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, I'm not sure why you bothered in that case. Just spreading the wealth, I guess. Our second match is Barry Windham versus Dr. Death Steve Williams for Williams' UWF heavyweight title. I guess Barry Windham makes him a logical challenger because he is, at this point, the Western State Heritage Champion. I think that's got to be my favorite of the weird belts that disappear quickly. Mm-hmm. The Western States Heritage title, it's just, that's that's a wonderful kind of odd name for, uh, for a belt. Yeah, because it's not Western States titles. Yeah. Like, it like covers, we've had. Yeah, it covers like Arizona or Texas or something. We've had the Mid-Atlantic heavyweight title. We've had the uh, the National heavyweight title and yeah. things. But this one's the Western States Heritage title. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's probably my favorite weird belt for naming. Although for... Weirdly, exactness, my favorite, probably the NWA Florida Bahamian heavyweight title. Yeah. <laughs> that also does exist. There's no Bible belt, right? 
How is that not a thing? That yeah, that's wow. <laughs> That'd be perfect. You should oh even write in that show. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if these are just dubbed in, but Wyndham has this year's Starcade theme as he comes out. Doctor Death has generic rock. Doctor Death does have a Sooners uniform, though, so I guess that's a little bit of flash to the entrance. Better than later's. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Jim Ross builds up that these two are great friends out of the ring, but that friendship ends at the bell. There's a crisscross to start, and they're evenly matched with both power moves and mat wrestling. The crowd isn't very into it, and some audibly yell boring. I respectfully disagree. The two spill out of the ring, and there's a stare down, but Wyndham claps Dr. Death on the shoulder, and they both climb back in, neither taking advantage. Dr. Death and Wyndham both show off their strength, with Wyndham in particular nailing a massive gut-wrench suplex. Mm-hmm. Very impressive, yeah. Dr. Death grabs a headlock and impressively hangs on through a belly-to-back suplex and a hip toss, but a second gets Wyndham free. They run the ropes and counter each other with shoulder blocks and leapfrogs. But a leapfrog goes wrong, as Dr. Death doesn't jump high enough to clear the very tall Wyndham, and Wyndham's head slams hard into Dr. Death's crotch. Dr. Death lets out a mighty howl, for which I do not blame him at all. No. And he goes down. The match stops entirely for a while, as Wyndham backs off and lets Dr. Death recover, and Dr. Death slowly works his way to his feet and nurses his injury. Wyndham keeps away until he asks if Dr. Death is good to continue, and Dr. Death nods. They trade mat holds, and Dr. Death is visibly slow getting up and still limping. Wyndham tries a crossbody, and Dr. Death dodges, and Wyndham spills out of the ring, stumbles, and hits his head on the timekeeper's table outside. Wyndham slowly gets back in, and Dr. Death quickly rolls him up for the three to huge boos from the crowd. Uh, yeah, it's a really strong hearting match until, unfortunately, it was, I guess, too strong hard hitting. <laughs> Especially in the wrong location. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's... It feels weird because it's going really well, and then this, that happens, and there's no recovery from it. Yeah. That has to be a legit thing, both from his reaction and from the way they, the rest of the match plays out. Because I could see it if it was, like, when they do a fake injury. When someone, like, they'll do, like, a leapfrog, and they'll, like, land their leg, and they'll sound like their legs hurt. Yeah. And then the face comes over, and you roll them up really quickly. But they don't do that. They try to restart the match then bring it to that abrupt finish which makes you feel like yeah they it has to be legit to me yeah it's kind of a shame well barry looks clearly like you know he's very sportsmanlike. you know he looks concerned for dr death did give him a long time to get the the whole going over the thing and hitting his head on the table was too convenient for me (laughs) (laughs) i was like okay i know that they want to end the match because he's probably not doing well yeah it, it definitely, like you said, it, it felt like a promising start of a match, yeah. but it gets derailed and it does seem from, I was looking for any solid information on this and I couldn't find a definitive statement from anyone either way, but most people do seem to theorize it's a legit injury. And we have other shots to the crotch uh, at points on this show that are treated entirely differently. So it, yeah, the length of time that he's limping around and everything makes me feel this was probably legit. Very ballsy show. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Dr. Death and Wyndham both had some really impressive power moves and some good mat wrestling, and I think it was shaping up to be a nice one, but unfortunately that collision on the leapfrog just 
looks to legitimately injure Dr. Death, and he was clearly in a lot of pain afterwards. I seriously doubt the match was intended to end that quickly or in that way. No. I do feel like they actually made it work pretty well, though. If this, if there wasn't this storyline planned to be in with, they improvised a good one of Wyndham backing off when Dr. Death was injured um, and giving him time, but then Dr. Death refusing to do the same for Wyndham when he gets kind of knocked loopy with the table. Yeah. So I thought that was actually kind of interesting, and maybe there was something along that line planned regardless of the injury, but uh, they just managed to make it work with what had happened in the match. So regardless, uh, good on them to trying to work something out. And it's a shame, honestly, that we didn't get to see more from them. It's a really good start, and then then nothing happens. And they, yeah. They do their best, but yeah, it's only I mean, they, to do with that. They even had a warm-up, uh, you know, where like they bench-pressed the other person, and then... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like they just never got... After the injury, they'd never shifted out of the, you know, those those low gears into something fast-paced, and it, yeah. you know... Dr. Death was supposed to win, so they just advanced the timetable. Yeah, I feel like they just kind of skipped a large portion of it and just went to went to the ending, and maybe that ending was the original planned one, maybe not. But yeah, it it def- you definitely feel like there was more of this match, and, and we don't get it because of the injury. So Yeah, so well, reading up on UWF in preparation for this show, you read about they had three titles going into this show. They had the UWF heavyweight title, the UWF TV title, which we'll see later, and the UWF tag team titles, which just don't appear in the show whatsoever, which is interesting. So according to Wikipedia, the UWF titles, not counting the TV title, because that dealt with separately, are officially deactivated on November 26, 1987, <laughs> which, if you're paying attention, was the exact same day of the show. Okay. So, use it for this show, and then goodbye. Apparently. Interesting. It makes the way they handle this match even more confusing to me. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, if I find more clear information about it, I'll, I'll tell you, but that's, that's what I can find. Is they're deactivated. At, there's not a show afterward where they talk about it. They just don't have these titles anymore. Hmm. Well, our next match is a scaffold match, or Skywalker's match, between the Midnight Express, which is now Beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan, with Jim Cornette and Big Bubba Rogers, versus the Rock and Roll Express, which is still Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. So in the build-up to this show a few months back, the Rock and Roll Express are the tag team champions, and Cornette essentially has reignited the feud between the two of them. In kayfabe, he supposedly signs a, they describe a blank contract months before Starcade, basically just saying, no matter what happens at Starcade, we're going to fight the Rock and Roll Express. So going into a tag title match against the Four Horsemen, Art and Tully, which is also an ODQ, the Midnight Express attack the Rock and Roll Express, severely targeting Robert Gibson on the outside. So he's injured outside the match. It's a handicap match for a long time. He finally does the heroic face thing, comes in, tries to fight, but he's too injured. And immediately he has an arm pull put on him by Art Anderson, and his partner calls the match to stop it, unless they lose the titles. So now there's a clear reason for these two people to behave each other. Yeah. Or renewed or doing this rivalry. So the Rock and Roll Express take the blank contract that Cornette apparently signed and make it a Skywalker's match. Which Cornette claims that they invented, though I can't find any confirmation of that anywhere. <laughs> but it's wrestling, so 
It could be too work. What do you think? George Lucas would have other words. <laughs> I wonder if there, there, there really should have at some point been a Skywalker's match at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah, yeah. See that? <laughs> or at least a joke about another Skywalker. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's another. Right to the next match, and we get generic rock playing for quite a while before Cornette and the Midnight Express, now beautiful Bobby Eaton and sweet Stan Lane, come out. The Rock and Roll Express get hard rock, still generic, but it has a good rhythm. The announcer notes that a Skywalker's match may be the most dangerous match in all of professional wrestling. I would imagine that Jim Cornette agrees. Yes. <laughs> Surprisingly more dangerous than the Exploding Ring death match, although that sounds more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, true. Cornette looks genuinely hurt by the crowd booing him and his team. <laughs> he has a great expression. He's great. The team start out arguing in the ring, with the Midnight's reluctant to climb. Cornette gives Eaton a hug in a tender moment. Oh. Gibson climbs up the scaffold, as Lane and Eaton start climbing. Down below, though, Big Bubba ambushes Ricky Morton and hits a massive side slam. Gibson is left alone fighting Lane and Eaton, and they easily control and do some damage. But as Bubba tries to climb to join them, Morton recovers and uses Cornette's racket to stop Bubba from climbing then climbs up and uses the racket to turn the tide. Eaton, though, turns the tide back with some powder to Gibson and Morton's eyes, and Cornette gloats, but the Rock and Roll Express recover, and the team's trade blows with Gibson even freeing part of the handrail to use as a weapon. The racket falls from the scaffold, but Cornette flings it back up right into Eaton's hands. With Gibson and Lane both in trouble, Morton tries to keep Lane down, but keeps glancing over at Gibson, struggling with whether to save his partner or keep trying to knock Lane off the scaffold. Gibson manages to get the racket and recover, and Morton and Lane climb down below, with Morton knocking Lane off the scaffold. Morton joins Gibson up above, and the two use the racket to beat up Eaton, then shuffle him off the scaffold. Eaton hangs on, so Morton hits him with the racket, and Gibson hangs off the side and claps Eaton with both feet a few times, knocking him down for the win. Post-match, Cornette orders Bubba up the scaffold. Bubba takes the racket and faces off against Morton. Bubba tosses the racket, his coat, and his hat down to Cornette, and beckons for Morton. Morton slowly comes forward, then nails Bubba in the balls, and quickly clambers down the scaffold after Gibson. The Rock and Roll Express celebrate, and Morton wears Bubba's coat and hat and takes the tennis racket. I have to say, you can definitely see the difference between a fake shot to the uh, crotch and a real one when you compare the Bubba spot <laughs> and the uh, Dr. Death spot in the previous match. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm kind of torn on this match. I mean, because I wasn't a huge fan of the last one. This one definitely feels like they know a little more to do with it. They have the one and the spot of taking the handlebar and using it to hit the guy with. I appreciate that. But for me, it's still guys standing on a really small platform, punching each other, and then doing this thing where you grab a guy and slam him sort of forward, but he puts his knees down and then his hands down. And I completely understand, I would not want to take a normal bump on that thing. Anytime you roll, you're in, tra- you're in danger. It just, I don't know, I still don't see the appeal of this match. It's def- I don't know, I'm not sure it's better than the first one, but it feels, with the story add to it at the beginning it feels more rounded as a match rather than mm-hmm. people fighting at the top waiting for some to be able to fall off yeah uh john you you really liked the last year's scaffold match what were your thoughts I on did, this I, one? I did <laughs> no, <I'm> joking uh, <laughs> um didn't the last years also have a blinding powder as well um, i feel like it 
did. Yeah, I I don't recall exactly. I'm pretty sure. For some reason, like I I enjoyed the the racket the racket catch. You know, it's not like I don't know that if you practiced cool. that or anything. So that that looked good. You know, I was actually watching it very closely during the match, and I was trying to see if the um, platform was actually even like buckling when they're in the middle. Like, but it's like totally rigid. So I was like, yeah. all right, it doesn't seem as precarious as it could be. Uh, not that I want anyone to fall and get hurt, but you know, it's just like look pretty stable. And you know, they weren't accidentally undoing the uh, guard ra- handrails or anything <laughs> that was, that this time. Yeah, it was perfectly intentional this time. <laughs> I, I did have a, an eye roll at the, uh, the the second crotch shot, but I was like, oh, you know, whatever. They have to end it somehow. Yeah. I did like that uh, they did put on the jacket and the racket and everything. That, at that, the that looked funny. I, I thought that was cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did like the um, I don't know I don't know what you call that move, but it was like ledge scissors or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, the little spot where he's doing the the kick from either side. Yeah, I mean it looked corny, but I was like, it's still uh, it still would be hard to do, so it's mm-hmm. kind of cool. And I thought that was a good good way to get someone down, just to be different. Yeah, yeah. For me, this was definitely better than last year's scaffold match. Uh, there was more of a clear storyline to it, like you were mentioning, Al, mm-hmm. especially with Morton at first being blocked from coming up. And there were some pretty good ideas for spots in the middle of it. I particularly liked the chucking the racket back up onto the scaffold. That was an, actually kind of amazing, yeah. the aim and, and catch on that. Morton's indecision about whether to go help Gibson or keep fighting Lane, I, I thought was a good moment for a character moment in the middle. The inclusion of the racket and the powder in the handrail spot were good ideas to give the match a little bit more to build around. And the ending spot, like you were, you said, was was actually pretty neat with them just hitting him and hitting him and hitting him to make sure he would fall down. That said, for me, there's just still not that much stuff that guys can do up on a scaffold. There's some good spots, but in my recap, I really, really glossed over people just kneeling on the scaffold and holding the handrails and slowly punching and stomping and hitting with the racket and that's most of this match yeah i think they should combine it with uh ropes yeah like like you, they're tied at the wrist or whatever and if oh, one gets God. knocked over you know like the only way to save yourself is to jump over their side and then you kind of pinball together you know <laughs> and and you know you can battle it out until someone lets go of the rope i mean not necessarily tie it to them yeah yeah there you go uh, you could use the outside ropes to trip people and and you know or save them i don't know it would be it'd that be sounds cool. incredibly dangerous but possibly interesting i would enjoy it <laughs> the only time i, I could see and they come up look up later that maybe i could have better issue with the scaffold match is if uh in later years in wcw they would do their spring breakout show every year where they have the wrestling ring built around a pool if you had a wider scaffold and they just fall in the pool i would have less issue with that that's that's true would solve yeah, two that, issues. it would be a good moment too like would, yeah plummeting and do a do a nice dive or cannonball down into the pool yeah. probably a lot safer but also uh, a kind of good dynamic splash when you yeah. go down. You get a big yeah, big burst of water coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't want to hit one of the tables and it dissolves. <laughs> it's made up. But yeah, that would be yeah. neat. There's also something missing for me with these. Neither one of these matches you had were titled matches, so you can't go. Oh, if you just like you tried to leave the match without throwing the other guy off, you lose your titles. Yeah. There's nothing at stake here. There's no career in the line or anything. There's always this unspoken idea that is sometimes actually spoken, but not often enough for my taste, of there being you know a difference in the size of the, the winner's purse versus yeah, the loser's yeah. purse. I wish they would talk about that more often, 
but every now and then it comes up on a wrestling show and it's it's nice because it reinforces why you always do want to win the match. Right, right, right. You know. But so without that, you have the issue of the one guy trying to get out of the way, one of the American Express guys. And rather than climb down the side ladder, he decides to hang from the bottom to get away. Yeah. Which I know that's so he'll fall into the ring, but I don't know why he does that outside of that, that reasoning. Yeah. I want them to monkey all the way across. You know, like the, the, they call it monkey bars, but you know, yeah. like I, I yeah. want them to go all the way to the other side. Yeah, I'd like to see someone actually make it across at some point. And come back Because that up. seems to be actually what he was trying to do, I think, was get away from where Morton was stopping him from climbing back up. Yeah, so yeah, Climb yeah. up on the other side and go after Gibson. But that that's, I think, my explanation for that spot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just seems like it. that spot was identical to the previous year's show, where the other one was different. So I like the second fall better than the first. For the Minute Express side, they briefly win the tag titles later in the year. Uh, the Rock and Roll Express went to kind of an interesting story. They actually both leave uh, a couple months into 88. I don't think it actually is January. So it's not still the cursed month, but it's around the same time. <laughs> they return at the second class show, talking about how they're coming back. Right. At that point, they've been gone for months. They do come back for a while, but then Robert Gibson, just him, he leaves in July of her pay dispute. Right. Which leaves Ricky Morton hanging around there. As sort of an interesting side note I have for this, at the same time, while they're gone from the NBA, they wrestle in the ADBA against the Midnight Rockers, huh. which is Shawn Michaels and Marginetti, a.k.a. the Rockers. That's cool. So we actually have a Rock and Roll Express versus uh, Michaels and Gennetti match. Correct. I wonder if that's available somewhere. That That's something we should track down. I can imagine that's probably pretty cool. It's probably in the network somewhere. I yeah. also read while reading on the... This is much later, mind you, but it's still kind of connected anecdote to it. So at one point, fairly recently in like the 2000s, the, this is a point where the Rock'n'Roll Express aren't tagging together. They wrestle as the Rock'n'Roll Express with different people all the time, different promotions. Mm-hmm. So at one point in Japan, Marty Gennetti and I believe it's Robert Gibson team up to form a new super team. That's pretty cool, too. <laughs> you, guess, you want to guess what their name is? The Midnight Rock and Roll Express? That would be good. No, it's not that, though. No? It's the Rockin' Rockers. <laughs> oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Tony and JR take a little bit of time to discuss the Dr. Death versus Barry Windham match. And JR points out that while Wyndham gave Dr. Death time to recover, Dr. Death didn't return the favor. So they're definitely making that the story now, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't the plan to begin with. We cut backstage to Bob Caudle, who's with Michael Hayes, who's in a nice suit, Precious, and Jimmy Garvin. And right you are, Tony. We're here with gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, Precious, Freebird, Michael Hayes. Jimmy, what an event. What a day. Oh! It has already been. <laughs> But I know you're disappointed that you didn't win the match. Well, I'm not that disappointed now, Bob, because I didn't lose the match either. You know, we didn't win, we didn't lose, but it was a good contest. Michael Hayes, myself and I, and Sting, we feel confident that we had a good, exciting match. And the fact is this, I'm just really excited on behalf of my squeeze, Precious, and Michael Hayes. Bob, I'd like to tell all the fans that I'm just glad to be a part of Starcade 87. 
It's the most exciting event in all wrestling history. I mean, the fact is, I get excited because I think about all the careers that are on the line tonight. I mean, we're just this far through it. There's a lot more action to come. And when I think about the guys like Dusty Rhodes right now that must be just a little bit nervous because just in a few minutes, he's going to put his career on, a li on the line. Then you got the Road Warriors against uh, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. And as far as I'm concerned about that, Bob, Michael Hayes and I are really concerned about that match because we want to challenge the winners of that match. It don't matter if it's the Road Warriors or if it's Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. Everybody knows it's no secret. Squeeze and I and Michael, we've been talking about it. We want the world tag team titles. They're on our mind and we're going to get them. My brother Ronnie, I get goosebumps up and down my back when I think about him. I love him to death and I know if anything, this is his day. Starcade 87 means a lot to everybody. Don't get me wrong, Bob. It means a lot to a lot of young careers. It means a lot to people that's been in this sport for many years. Myself, I'm just a proud with Michael and Squeeze to be a part of the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett and to be on the winning team in professional wrestling in the wide world today. And there's no doubt in anybody's mind that the National Wrestling Alliance has the greatest wrestlers in the world. And my brother Ronnie Garvin is at the top of the pile. He is the world heavyweight champion. I, I like to predict too, Michael. I do want to predict that it's not my fault, ladies and gentlemen, when my brother Ronnie keeps the world heavyweight title and defeats Ric Flair because nobody knows more than I do. And I've sat down and talked with my brother Ronnie for several hours about this. It means a lot to him because he did have a great match, there's no doubt, when he defeated Ric Flair in Detroit. Absolutely. But the talk is this, that match was nothing compared to the match that's going to happen later on. I'm telling you one thing, it's really going to be exciting. I'm going to be right here. In fact, I'd be on the front row if I could, but there's no seats left out there. In fact, ladies, there's no seats left anywhere, and it's going to be fantastic. I do predict my brother to win and keep his world heavyweight title. I do predict my buddy, that rascal Dusty Rose, the American Dream's not going to let the world down. He's not going to have to go into retirement, and uh, the Road Warriors aren't Anderson thing. You know how I feel about that. And of course, Nikita Koloff and Terry Taylor. You can't forget about a match like that. There's two individuals fighting for the National Wrestling Alliance against the UWF, and of course, <laughs> there's no question in anybody's mind, the greatest organization in the whole wide world, and we're very proud to be a part of it, is the National Wrestling Alliance. I know you're going to tell me my time's run out, but I'm going to tell you I'm finished talking, and we got to go, so we'll see you later. Have a good evening. And good luck to you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Oh, that's just the best. Okay. My breath is listening to that. <laughs> I know. Wasn't amazing. It was a good show, guys. Yeah. <laughs> this was hilarious. <laughs> he he does like three minutes and covers, I think, like 14 or 15 different topics. Is that what I had up to? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he loops back to a few. Yeah. That's what's great about it. He just keeps going. He like doesn't even pause to breathe. And, uh, Hayes Coddle and Precious, who he appears to redub Squeeze during the promo, can do nothing but watch. Hayes cheers him on at first, but he he seems to try and interject a few times later and just gets cut off because Jimmy keeps going without the slightest pause. Yeah. Hayes ends up looking a little bit perturbed by the end of it, so I wonder if he was supposed to get some time too. But uh, watching his face is highly amusing during the promo. Yeah, I was in stitches watching this thing. Uh, it feels like it's almost all one sentence amazing it's uh almost micro machines-esque it is it is yeah i was thinking of the micro machines guy too yeah not quite as fast no but well and there's a bunny too he keeps going and going yes. and going 
what I did actually really like about it was he did talk up the up- upcoming matches a lot. Yeah. I think it's clear by now from the earlier shows. I love when wrestlers talk about other wrestlers' matches. It makes sure. the show feel so much bigger. Yeah. So I will compliment him on that. He is also only slightly better at making predictions than John Carnoodle. <laughs> he gives us predictions for Ron Garvin versus Flair and Dusty versus Lex, but doesn't really for Road Warriors versus Tully and Arn, and also forgets Tully's in the match. And he kind of does for Nikita versus Terry Taylor, but only in commenting that he thinks the NWA is better than the UWF, which I guess counts as a vote for Nikita since Terry's the UWF title holder, but yeah. I think he's also an NWA wrestler, so, so it's <laughs> weird one. Honestly, not a bad promo, despite being delivered at roughly the speed of sound. And, uh, well, I guess every promo is delivered at the speed of sound. So roughly the speed of light. Let's go with just to make it sound more expensive. You only hear it at the speed of sound. But yes, I get you. Yes, true. (laughs) But yeah, not a bad promo overall. Just delivered too fast and appears to cut off other people that might have wanted to talk. (laughs) Great homage to the travel agents get from MyPython. (laughs) Yes. The only way it would have been cooler if he was underwater while doing it. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I do wish we had a Sting promo, but that's... Uh... Yeah, it is weird. Sting's not there. Yeah. It's just Hayes and, and Garvin and not their tag team partner. Makeup emergency. Yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe Sting was like, no, that guy's going to talk forever. <laughs> I'm not going to go out with is him. Is this normal for him? I don't know. I've not seen many Jimmy Garvin combos. I haven't seen why. him talk. Yeah. I kind of want to see other ones just to see if he does this all the time or if this is just, hey, Jimmy, you're a baby face right now, so talk really fast. And he's more normally. I'll, I'll be interested yeah, to see if no. we see more in the future. This was a surprise to me. And I've watched the shows and I have not seen him talk. Doesn't do this anywhere else that I've seen so far. Anyways, and I was thinking you mentioned Michael Hayes then leaves for the world class championship wrestling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is why he was like. Garvin, you didn't let me talk. I'm out of here. <laughs> it's a good theory, Andy. Right away, Caudle brings in Dr. Death Steve Williams, who seems to be walking a little better anyway. All right, let's bring in Dr. Death Steve Williams right here. And you saw fans and winning that match earlier against Barry Wyndham. But hey, Steve, a controversy about that and about that win. What we're talking about here is the gold talking about the gold. We're talking about the national champion. We're talking about Super Bowl. We're talking about the Olympic champion. We're talking about the UWF World Heavyweight Champion. And my hat's off to Barry Wyndham. He gave me a fight. He gave me a heck of a wrestling match. He had his chance. He had his chance to capitalize on it. Just like the Sooners, they were the underdogs last week. They capitalized on it. They won. They dominated the game. As you people here witness, Starcade, one of the biggest things in professional wrestling, the biggest, the biggest thing in professional wrestling, Starcade. You watched Dr. Death come out here, and you watched him come from underneath to come above and then to the top. I'm going to go full speed. I'm 110 to 210%. I'm the wrestling machine of the year. As you people witness, Barry Windham did give me one of the toughest and the roughest wrestling matches I've had. Hey, Barry, I'm going to tell you something. You're a heck of a wrestler. And you know something? I'm proud. I'm very proud of this. I went down a lonesome highway. I went down a lonesome highway. A lot of things happened to me to get this belt. So all I got to tell all my friends here, I will go 210% to protect this belt because I am the wrestling machine of the world. 
Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Right now, let's go back to Tony and Jim Ross. Interesting metaphor usage. <laughs> yes, yes. So is he overclocking himself? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Got to be careful he doesn't overheat. Yeah, yeah, I would be worried about that. Hopefully he has good cooling installed. We've made enough computer puns. I don't I know. Think, 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 <laughs> okay. Yeah, any more, John? No. <laughs> I'll let that sink in. Yeah. There you go. There we go. I was definitely glad to see the matches story, whether it was impromptu or planned, getting some more airtime here. The difference in how they behaved around an injury was an interesting concept, and they explore it pretty well here, setting Dr. Death up at least as having heelish tendencies for taking advantage when his friend didn't. I do love that he needed to up the normal 110% effort thing, going to 210% because it's just that much more effort. <laughs> that is that is some level of effort there. I was really hoping he was going to say 110% and they said, no, let's double it, 210%. <laughs> Yeah, just so, so we cool. could get some uh, some Steiner level math there. Exactly. Yeah, he's not a great promo. He stumbles and repeats himself a bit, but he did get the points across mm. pretty well, I think. Talking about before when they they deactivated the belts, when did they tell him they're deactivated? <laughs> I'm, guessing, I'm guessing literally as he walked out of this promo. Yeah, they I probably think. just didn't have the heart to tell him as he went to do the promo because you know he just got. Hit in the nuts. I see. Yeah, that's a second, a metaphorical kick in the nuts. <laughs> follow a, a literal hit to the nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's a little funny too that he's talking about Starcade being the biggest thing. It's like wait till you see the buy rate tomorrow. You'll point. I I also didn't mention this before since the last time I talked about it. So the UWF Heavyweight Title was founded about a year before this show. Yeah. So you want to guess how many champions they had? In that time period? Four? That is exactly right. All right. He was the fourth and final champion. Okay. Okay, cool. Four. Oh, and the many beat was Big Bubba Rogers. That's interesting, because Bubba was already in JCP last year. Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the Dr. Death promo? Maybe his, his time slot was a lot smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carvin went too long. So. He had to trim what he was going to say down a little bit. It's like, crap, I got <laughs> Yeah, I, I, he's probably still in some pain, too, so oh, I think yeah, you can give no. him a little bit of grace, but yeah. <laughs> we go back to the announce desk, and Tony and JR congratulate Dr. Death and build up that Jim Crocker Promotions and the NWA are the major league of professional wrestling. They talk of the bunkhouse stampede, and I was so afraid we were going to get another lengthy video package for it, <laughs> but we don't. In the background, we see the last bits of the scaffold being taken down, and the rigging raised back up to the ceiling. Quite efficient this time, actually, because yeah. they made good use of their promo period. Absolutely, I, yeah. I do wonder if uh, if Jimmy Garvin made the, <laughs> gave them more time. <laughs> yeah. I like to think behind the camera, someone was just doing the little motion with like, you actually, know, go on, yeah, Jimmy, keep going, go, keep going. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> Tony and JR talk up the Koloff versus Taylor match and how Nikita is the favorite, but Taylor has Gilbert by his side and is a great athlete himself. So our next match is Nikita Koloff versus Terry Taylor with Eddie Gilbert in a unification match for Nikita's NWA TV title and Taylor's UWF TV title. So this was part of the again part of the JCP versus UWF feud. Originally, according to storyline, it was booked as being simply Nikita Koloff defending his title against Terry Taylor's title. 
But so what Terry Taylor does is he, him and Gilbert attack Koloff and physically steal his title belt for a while. He eventually gets it back. So his punishment for that in storyline is Jim Crockett changing the match to being a unification match. So mm-hmm. now he's titled on the line and it's only going to be one title. Now it's not clear if it mattered who was going to be the champion because a lot of times when they do these, they say this is going to be the title going forward and whoever wins is is that champion. Yeah. They don't specify. So I can I mean, see it being the idea of the match being like, if Nikita wins, it's the NWA TV yeah. title. If Taylor wins, it's the UWF one. Right. Well, that would have been cool. Yeah. That's, they, just, yeah. they don't really say it, but yeah. But that might be the angle. I don't know. It would be interesting. I, yeah, I just don't know the answer to that one. Yeah. Taylor has a pretty great robe as he comes out, and it's uh, sparkling black and red with silver stars. Gilbert comes out in his basic wrestling gear and t-shirt and had sunglasses on. I didn't actually catch if they were a Statue of Liberty shades again or just regular sunglasses now. I think they were different, but, yeah. But uh, it's a kind of odd mix of looks there. Nikita gets huge cheers, and Tony notes that there is no doubt who the fans think should be TV champ. The fans chant loudly for Nikita as they open, with Nikita showing off his strength on shoves out of lockups. Taylor manages to take Nikita down with an arm drag, but Nikita just springs back up, and that's the last real offense Taylor gets for quite a while, with Nikita just shrugging off everything that he tries and working on Taylor's arm. Taylor tries to get out of the ring to escape, and Nikita just drags him back in. Gilbert justifiably asks why Hebner didn't make them break since Taylor had touched the ropes. Nikita glares at Gilbert and says something growly in Russian. The arm work continues with Nikita landing huge hammer blows and using wrist and arm locks, occasionally glancing over to growl at Gilbert. JR wonders if paying attention to Gilbert might be a mistake, but Tony says that it seems to be working and keeping Gilbert intimidated so he won't interfere. Taylor gets frustrated and shoves Nikita after barely escaping a pin, and Nikita responds with a slap and some heavy strikes and power moves. A knee strike from Taylor does earn a two count, but Nikita gets a hammer lock on Taylor as Taylor whines that he could have had Nikita there. Then howls, oh my god, no, in pain, as Nikita <laughs> yanks on his arm. A thumb to the eye helps make the match a bit more even, but Taylor only finally takes control when Nikita misses the Russian sickle clothesline and hits the turnbuckle. Taylor uses the barricade, ring posts, and ropes to damage Nikita's arm further, and it's injured enough that hitting Taylor hurts Nikita too, allowing Taylor to keep dominating. Though, Tony and JR point out that Nikita's left arm, which is what Taylor is working, won't be good for much now, but he uses his right arm to do the sickle, which is accurate, but this all started with Nikita missing the sickle, so it feels a little bit weird that that's not the arm that's being further injured. Huh. Yeah, that's true. I think that's kind of just the wrestling style. If I understand correctly, wrestlers almost exclusively work the left limb, so it's easier to remember how to apply holds and remember which limb to sell. And it normally works fine, but in this match, it stands out a little bit. I think it only varies when you wrestle Southpaws like when Regal, for example. Yeah, yeah. You invert that for them, by the way, yeah. Nikita starts to get a second wind, but Gilbert finds a moment to nail him in the knee with a chair, and Taylor gets a figure four leg lock. The camera incidentally totally misses the chair shot. Mm-hmm. Gilbert holds Taylor's hands to give him better leverage, and he gets a few two counts, but Hebner catches them. Gilbert tries choking Nikita while Hebner lectures Taylor, but Nikita fights free and grabs Gilbert. Taylor charges, but Nikita dodges and Taylor nails Gilbert, leaving Taylor open for the Russian sickle for the three. Post-match, Nikita leaves to massive cheers, holding both TV titles in the air. He accidentally drops one when Hebner goes to hold his hands in the air, so Hebner quickly snatches it up to help him carry it to the back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I actually really liked it. I didn't have a lot of hopes going into it because, I mean, I like Nikita Koloff, but he's, other than his flare match, he's fairly untested in singles territory for me. Mm-hmm. And flare is kind of hard metric because it's Ric Flair. Yeah. I think even later when Ric Flair wrestles El Gigante, it's actually not terrible. So that's kind of your metric for how much he can pull a matchup yeah. in, gen- in general. So I was curious how that was going to turn out. And my only experience with Terry Taylor was watching, was it 84? Was that the last time he was there, or was it 85? I think it was 85 with him against Buddy Landell, wasn't it? Well, let's say it's 85. So I had that one match against, which I did like. So it's not like I didn't like the people. It just they weren't someone that I expected a really great match from. Yeah. But honestly, it came together really well for me. I liked Koloff being the strong, dominant face. My joke before really is a Goldberg thing before this Goldberg. Yeah, totally. It's amazing to see that. His like mannerisms, his his look, everything feels very Goldberg. Exactly. And even, even the Nikita chant kind of sounds it's it's a similar thing to what they'll do with Goldberg yeah, later yeah. on. So thankfully they don't pipe those in like they would later do in WCW. <laughs> but yeah, the two merch I like Nikita's strong face. I like Terry Taylor as the sort of dashly technical heel. Edgar didn't do a whole lot that we actually saw. Thank you, cameraman. But his presence there was a constant aspect, mm-hmm. whether it's him being yelled out or trying to distract him. So he actually really liked it. And the fact that it was a clean finish, I know there's a distraction, but there's an actual pin and everything for me really helped it a lot. Mm-hmm. I was actually surprised by how much I liked it. I liked it too. There was a lot of arm warfare going on between the <laughs> two. It started off quick and then it just kind of slowed down for a little bit until there was this crazy choke pin. And oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was like, okay, the intensity just ra- ramped right back up for me. The flying clothesline was spectacular. Mm-hmm. After 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 you got yelled at for holding hands. or, or... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, so you feel like this was a, a good demo for Nikita as a singles wrestler? Absolutely. Because last year, I kind of agree with you, Al, that it's hard to tell whether it's Nikita or just Flair being so good at leading him through a match. But now it seems like he's more proving himself as, as able to work in with a variety of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really nice match. Like you said, John, I did feel like it got a little bit slow with the arm bars and hammer locks. But they did provide some good character bits to fill in those moments between Nikita constantly growling at people and Taylor complaining and howling in pain. So that was good. There was a point that it was a little, just got, you know, a little weird that looked like they were doing a belly massage or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it was a nice little intermission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Aside from one slightly awkward looking inverted atomic drop, I think they worked together really smoothly. Mm-hmm. Nikita felt really powerful, almost too powerful because he mostly shrugs off almost every single thing that Taylor does. And even when Taylor does get a hit that stuns him, he's just back to full force moments later for most of the match. It does make Nikita look great, mind, but it might make Taylor look a little too weak. It takes just a bit too long to get to the point where Nikita hurts his arm and Taylor can get what feels like an actual advantage. Putting that earlier in the match might have made it feel just a tad more balanced and less of a one-sided beatdown. I enjoyed Taylor and Gilbert's heel work. They had a never-ending litany of things to complain and whine about, which was (laughs) a lot of fun. Yeah. And... Even if I didn't already like Nikita, I would be rooting for him a couple of minutes in with that going on. So it might be a little bit too one-sided, but it does work quite well. And like you were saying, uh, both of you, Nikita has grown as a performer. And it feels like now he's at the point where he can work well with a bunch of different people rather than 
last year felt like uh, it might just be Flair and Nikita just being good at doing his character. Oh, but, yeah. But Flair kind of leading him through the match. This feels much more, okay, He's he's got his own style now. Mm-hmm. It's been really cool watching him develop over the past few years. He's a very different performer than when he first shows up. It's been great to watch. If you could explain the 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 belly tickle thing, I, I, I appreciate <laughs> I don't know. it. I have no explanation for that one. <laughs> it's psychological warfare, John. <laughs> so unfortunately, the unified title reign of Nikita doesn't doesn't last very long. He uses his title in January. <sighs> To Mike Rotunda. Mike Rotunda is built up a lot on the shows leading up to Starcade, and then not on this at all. You could have switched him out with Eddie Gilbert, maybe, in the actual six-man match. I could see that. To show him on there. But also, maybe he wasn't a bad guy then. I'm not clear on this. Yeah, I don't know. But um, going into that match, he's also the Florida Heavyweight Champion. A title we haven't seen in quite a while, since 84, I believe. Now he has two titles, so his only solution is to just give his other title to Rick Steiner. I feel like the Florida title might have gotten slightly devalued. Is that, or is that the one he hangs away or the TV? That's what he hangs yeah, away, okay. yeah. yeah. He, he's a TV champion through most of the rest of the year. Well, as someone from Florida, I'm offended. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> then your complaints to uh, WCW headquarters. Okay. Our next match is the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, with Paul Ellering, versus Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard with J.J. Dillon for Arn and Tully's NWA World Tag Team titles. I'm a little bit sad that we moved on from Arn and Oli, because mm-hmm. I really enjoyed their work, but I like Tully too, so it'll be an interesting thing to see if they have a different dynamic. Yeah. So, like a lot of people, the Road Warriors were dragged into the Four Horsemen versus Everyone feud, so, for example, they were involved in war games um, during the Great American Bash tour for years. But the bigger storyline is just basically that the Road Warriors are sort of the top challengers, then top team that had not won the tag titles yet. Mm-hmm. There's been a sort of stranglehold between certain teams, and they hadn't gotten their shot and gotten the run with it yet. As I mentioned in the build for the scaffold match, Arn Tully win the titles in controversial fashion by submission for somebody else and because of the attack in Express. In the pre-match promos, they sort of blow that off, saying it doesn't matter who won and we're the champions. So it really just comes down to the heelish four horsemen who plan to leave the night with all of the gold, all of it back together, versus the top challengers that they finally can't ignore the challenge of. Now in these war games, does Hawk go by Professor Falcon? <laughs> no. No, he doesn't. The Road Warriors come with some more awesome 80s rock sound. Uh, it might be dubbed in, I'm not sure, but this one sounds maybe more like Street Fighter than Mega Man. Yeah, it's a little better. <laughs> they look seriously scary with the lights and the smoke and their spiky entrance gear. It uh, all works together really, really well. thought it was a good presentation of them. Absolutely, yeah. The Road Warriors are built from Chicago, so it's not exactly a surprise who the crowd is behind on this one. Yes. <laughs> They're the Chi-Town Warriors. <laughs> Arn starts off against Hawk and makes the mistake of getting in his face. Hawk grabs him by the throat, and Arn gives awesome bug eyes. Hawk overpowers him, impressively pressing him above his head at one point with ease. Arn tags Tully, 
but it doesn't go much better for him as he's forced to back off from a big boot and eats a clothesline, then rolls out only to be pressed by Animal and thrown back in through the ropes. He tries retreating again, but Hawk chases him down and brings him back, then hits a monster dropkick. Animal gets in and shows his own power against Tully and Arn, including catching Tully off the ropes into a power slam, and then tags Hawk back in as Arn and Tully have a strategy session. Arn and Tully double-team Hawk, but he clotheslines both down. Animal in, and we get another surprisingly impressive bear hug spot as he holds Tully suspended and leans back and forth with him to wrench the back. I hate bear hugs, so why do I find myself complimenting those so often? <laughs> it's impressed by the core strength there. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. An animal dropkick doesn't look as nice, but Tully's nice enough to sell it anyway, even though it mostly misses. A press slam on Arn looks much better. Hawk in, but Arn and Tully take control when Arn sweeps Hawk's leg out from under him and injures it while Hawk was lifting Tully. Over Kai style. <laughs> yeah, there. there you go. The horsemen trade off, further injuring Hawk's leg and use everything they can to keep the big man down and writhing in pain, including a chair shot to the leg when the ref isn't looking. They smoothly keep control with quick tags, even when Hawk manages to land a strike, and keep hold of his leg to keep him from getting to Animal. Classic Anderson tag work, just with the Blanchard mixed in this time. Tully gets the figure four, and Hawk howls, but the crowd cheers for him to keep fighting. Arn comes in for a few two-counts on the weekend Hawk, but Hawk counters a knee drop and knees Arn in the gut, then gets the tag to Animal. Animal lands a much better massive dropkick than before, but appears to kind of botch a spot, heading for Arn before he seems to remember he has to bounce off the ropes so Tully can grab his leg to take him down. Eh, no big deal. Yeah. Hawk chases Tully, and Animal fights Arn, and Tully ends up fleeing right into ref Tommy Young, who spills out of the ring. All four men fight, and Animal dumps Arn over the top rope on top of ref Earl Hebner, who came to check on Young. Hawk and Animal double clothesline Tully, then pick Arn up and hit the Doomsday device. Uh, Hebner slides in to count the three. Post-match, though, Hebner starts to award the belts to the Road Warriors, but Tommy Young tells him that Arn was actually flung over the top rope when he landed on top of him, so Young reverses the decision and awards the match to Arn and Tully by disqualification. The Road Warriors march off with the title belts anyway, and the crowd is not happy. <laughs> It was a really great showcase um, for everybody. The Road Warriors look really good. They throw people around. But they also, to their credit, they do sell really well. Mm -hmm. There's some people that are really big, and then once they have to take damage, they kind of stand there, or they just they sort of lay limp. They don't do anything dynamic. The Road Warriors, to me, really do both pretty well. Mm -hmm. There's obviously not a lot of technical aspect where they do, but they do what they do very well. Mm -hmm. And in contrast, the Arnatoli do their character work extremely well. And also the technical aspect of them is really good. Yeah. My issue is that it's not a clean finish. Especially because this is essentially the finish from, was it Stark at 85? With Dusty and Flair. True. Just, they sort of switched out the DQ for attacking for the DQ for over the top rope. Yeah. If it, if it had a clean finish, I would love it a lot. But I can only love it so much when it ends the way it does. Okay. I mean... The finish, the, I'm not going to talk about that. It's kind of the fly in the ointment thing. You know, it's just not, uh, I don't know if that's the right analogy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, it, it ruins it for me, you know. Um, but it was fast paced. Uh, I thought they were having fun in all the roles. You know, I do like Hawk quite a bit. So yeah. it was nice that he was featured for a good portion of it. And, uh, you know, they did a good job tagging in two on one. He never really got a way out of there. 
I think they did really good playing to the crowd and got everyone worked up, which I thought was nice. Yeah. Uh, and they weren't uh, like afraid to change things up. And if it got a little quiet, you know, they'd just move a little bit quicker and, and uh, channel that power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the over the rope thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was good to see if, if I will give them one, one brief credit. It was good to see that for once, Someone getting over the getting thrown over the top rope did actually matter to the match. Yeah, because they reference that rule constantly over True. the course of WCW, and most of the time they're finding an excuse for why it didn't actually cause a disqualification. Yeah. And this time it actually did, so I will give them at least that. You might as well use it. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. This match was absolutely awesome. The Road Warriors looked unstoppable, but Arn and Tully cheated their way to a commanding advantage. It's kind of the tag version of the Nikita versus Taylor match. Yeah. But there was a better feeling of balance this time, with Arn and Tully able to ultimately do more damage to Hawk than it felt like Taylor got to do to Nikita. There were a few sloppy spots in the middle, but by and large, this was a great power versus trickery sort of tag match. Arn just works just about as well with Tully as he did with Oli, and the two exhibited the same smooth tag work and focus on a body part that Arn and Oli did. I was very, very happy to see that that hasn't been lost. Oh, yeah. Hawk did a surprisingly excellent job selling the leg. I definitely have to agree on that. Yeah. I'm used to superhuman kind of wrestlers not really doing that much to sell like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. But he made it look like it was a struggle to keep going and, yeah. and kept up that that selling very well. So yeah, really, really excellent match. For me, the ending didn't actually hurt it that much this mm-hmm. time. I don't know. I kind of felt like it was it was okay. It felt like kind of a horseman thing. And I kind of liked how it played out, actually, with like... Hebner doesn't see the throw over the top rope because he's busy busy being landed on by the guy being thrown over the top rope. And uh, the the two ref thing, it, it kind of worked. I don't mind one of these every once in a while. And admittedly, we see them a lot, but that's in part because we're watching one show every year. This seemed like a pretty well-worked one for, for a, a screwy ending anyway. So I didn't end up minding it. I think I was just enjoying the performances too much. I don't know. I can understand that. I just, yeah, just, I have an issue with those. I totally get that. Yeah. 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 It's like I can't get past. This show as a whole has been really bad for the groin area yes. from the Dr. Death bit through the actually planned part with um, Big Bubba on the yeah. scaffold. And in this match, I really felt for poor Arn there. Yes. Because he takes two press slams. The second one seemed like there was a little bit of a struggle with it. So it was an extra oh, yeah. force when he's trying to lift him. And then he takes an actual inverted atomic drop. So it's like three in one match. I felt really bad for him. Yeah. Yep. The Four Horsemen's title run goes to the first class show. They actually, thought they for you, Bob, they do leave for the WWF before the end of the year. They come the Brain Busters. Arn and Tully do. Oh, Arn and Tully leave before, is it before Starcade 88? Yep. Oh, darn it. Yep. Because they're at Survivor Series 88, I believe, actually. Wow, so during the Starcade run, we're only going to get one Arn and Tully. Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, because when Arn, event- Arn eventually comes back, I know, but Tully doesn't get to, so... Right. Yeah. I believe that's correct, yeah. Wow, that's a shame, because they... I'm going to have to look up more of this team, and I know we'll probably do great see more Bash. of them when we do Great American Bash and stuff, but... Wow, that's, uh, that's, di- that's disappointing that they aren't going to be around for longer. Yeah. We go backstage, where Jack Gregory is talking with Magnum T.A. And of 
course, the taste of victory so short-lived, Magnum TA, for the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors. So unbelievable. The assault that was launched by the Road Warriors against Tully and Arn for those World Tag Team titles was the greatest I've seen in a long, long time. I mean, they dished out more punishment than you would think any human being would be able to withstand, yet Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson still the World Tag Team champions. And, of course, we've got more great matches in store coming up. Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, the legend himself, putting perhaps his entire career on the line against the man that holds the U.S. Heavyweight Championship belt, the total package, Lex Luger. We know it's a belt that Dusty Rhodes has never owned, the U.S. Heavyweight title. But this is the most critical match of Dusty Rhodes' career because he's got it all on the line. 90 days of not being able to wrestle anywhere in the world could end anybody's career. And I know Dusty's geared up for this one because he's going to have to be the best that he's ever been. And, of course, quickly, the other great match, the championship match for the World Heavyweight Championship, the champion Ron Garvin, Ric Flair, a four-time heavyweight champion himself. That's right. If Ronnie Garvin, the hand is a stone, can put Ric Flair down one more time, he'll prove once and for all that he is the one and only World's Heavyweight Champion. And speaking of champions, we're going to go down right now to the locker room. Bob Connell has got the new unified television champion, Nikita Koloff. Um, I thought it was kind of cool to see Magnum back since uh, I know he's not going to be wrestling anymore, but he's still a good personality, I think. And I think he does a decent job in a short time here of adding a little bit more perspective on some of the matches and yeah. kind of adding more emotion to the upcoming fights. So it was yeah. good to see him on there. Yeah. Last time we saw him, he apparently turned into a seagull according to that video package. <laughs> yeah, they so. so it's good to see him back in human form and commentating. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think my only critique for it, honestly, is that he doesn't make it more personal. Yeah. True. Cause he could point out his friends with Dusty. Obviously he can hold the title and all that. Yeah. It's good, but I feel like he could do a little more with that. That's all. Yeah, I th wish they spent more time on his transformation as an animagus, uh, going from seagull <laughs> back into a a human. Uh, I would yeah. like a little more backstory. Yeah, yeah, that that those superpowers you gotta gotta explore those a little bit more, guys. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be great if that was actually a story that they did with him. Yeah, it's like. You know, if Nikita actually came from like a bear, like the golden bear or something like that, you know. Sure as heck sounds like it, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, we go next to Bob Cottle, who is with Nikita Koloff. I, I, I think I, I have to say Nikita proceeds to cut, to cut the best promo in the universe. <laughs> it's up there. Sure. So good. Absolutely right, Jack. Now there's only one, and here he is, the world television champion, Nikita Koloff. Nikita? But Simple Camarada, I have to say, the first talking husband of Green Knight for the Super Bowl. First, I want to say, in the cross tour, four years now that I have been a professional wrestler, I have had many, many, many tough matches. But I want to say something about Terry Taylor. He is a great wrestler. He started a great wrestler. Or he would not have been UWF TV champion. I take nothing away from Terry Taylor. He gave Nakita Korov one of the best matches ever in my career. But now, as other people can see, now I could not be more happy. Now I have two belts. Two belts, Nakita Korov. Right, 
TV Javier. And I have to say, to be the only world TV Javier make my heart feel good. At this point in my career, comrade, I have to say, it make my heart feel good to be only world TV champion. There's not only one thing for Nakita Korov to make Nakita Korov feel better, and that is someday to be the world heavyweight champion. And I want to say, this is a one half of the superpower, and I believe in the Kira Korov, and I believe the last thing I want to say, you do it, I believe in the zero. Spasibo, camera, and I want to say to my friend, Spasibo. <laughs> he starts out like a perfect blend of Schwarzenegger and Stallone. Like the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the inability to understand what he's saying, you can just get slurred together. And then he just devolves into some sort of prehistoric cookie monster. <laughs> and it just, it just brings me joy. Uh, it's probably yeah. something like an impression that my dad would do. Oh my gosh, is it not the most brilliant thing ever? Yeah, I didn't understand about three quarters of the words in this promo the first time that I watched it. But uh, he's so wonderfully into his like over-the-top Russian accent, and he's so charged up and energetic that he's nearly unintelligible. Yeah. I was doubled over laughing watching this. It was great. So if you didn't do it on your second watch, you really should have turned the closed captioning on and see what they, <laughs> what they tried to make of that. Yeah. <laughs> the poor guy's like, I don't know. Yeah, I absolutely loved this. Aside from just the the vocals and everything, which were great, Nikita really put over his opponent. He seemed truly grateful for the career that he's had so far, yeah. and he very, very effectively built up the Dusty versus Luger match and did his part to get everyone behind Dusty. Not that Dusty really needs help getting people behind him, but he did a good job with it. As much as he's playing a f uh, fake Russian, Nikita felt very genuine and happy here, and I can't help feeling really happy for him. It's <laughs> no, yeah, it's like it's a terrific promo. It's actually a terrific promo. It's just also delivered in like this crazy over-the-top manner that is simultaneously unintelligible and awesome. <laughs> well, and to be fair to him, at this point, he had legally changed his name to Nikita S. Koloff. That's one hundred percent true. It happened yeah. in eighty-seven. <laughs> that is still his legal name now. I, I would assume. That Same is that. that's awesome. Hmm. Yeah, he's living. He's living that gimmick. Oh, <laughs> uh, Cookie Monster. That's great. That's like. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> nom, 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 nom. It's like. He he breathed between each word. He didn't do the Garvin method where you you talk for like, <laughs> like ten ten or twelve sentences and then take a take a, a sip of air and then continue on. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I almost I almost wonder if you took the made up language that they have Jabba the Hutt speak in Star Wars and just sped it up slightly. Would that how close that would sound too? <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was. That was brilliant. Uh, as Nikita walks off, J.J. Dillon comes over, and Bob Cottle says that looks like he has something to say. All right, world television champion right there, Nikita Koloff. And I think James J. Dillon may have a little message right here that he wants to, a statement to make. J.J., come right on in. Well, Bob, it's been a very busy night for me. As you just saw, I can breathe a little bit of sigh of relief because Tully and Arn have turned back the challenge of the hometown road warriors here in Chicago. And... 
it was an anxious moment because, in my opinion, they are the number one challengers, and the, the tag belts are safely with us, and that's, that's a big sigh of relief. And, of course, I've been real active in the training of Ric Flair and his quest to regain the world heavyweight title, and this could be a, certainly a turning point for his career. But I would be less than honest if I didn't admit to you that I've been almost totally preoccupied with this situation regarding the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Bob, for, yeah. for seven years, he has been a personal nemesis to me. And I, I've made charges at him in the past, but, but each time when I came up short, the most important thing was that I learned a lesson by it. And I guess maybe the number seven, Bob, is, is, is my lucky number because tonight I have never felt so confident in my life. Lex Luger, is, uh, he's a genetically gifted athlete. No he doubt. is the total package, and believe me, he is a perfect athlete. And I've got Dusty Rhodes backed in the corner right where I want him. And most important, Lex Luger is prepared for this match like none other he's ever been prepared for. In my estimation, we have a perfect plan. The perfect athlete, the perfect plan, and this will be the most important night of my life, certainly the most important night of my career. James J. Dillon tonight is going to be the talk of the wrestling world. I'm going to be on top of the mountain, and of course, the Road Warriors are going to share in that glory, too. All right, James J. Dillon. Fans, right now, let's go back to Tony and Jim Ross. I thought this was a, a, a nice promo, honestly. Uh, builds up the matches that have happened and that are going to happen surrounding the horsemen. He adds, again, a lot of gravitas to the situation around Dusty mm -hmm. and like builds up how long this feud has been going on between Dusty and the horsemen. And in just a few moments, he really, really effectively builds up Lex Luger, a man that is very new to the company, yeah. as perhaps the gravest threat that Dusty has faced so far. He gets over Luger, Dusty, Flair, Garvin, Arn, Tully, and the Road Warriors all in one promo and in quite a short time. So I'm once again glad to see Dylan's work in this period. It is a little bit odd when he ends the promo saying that the Road Warriors will share in the glory. I think he meant the horsemen, but, you know, one minor flub in the middle of a great promo doesn't ruin it. Yeah, no, it was a good promo. Um, we're all podcasters now, so maybe we're equal in that regard. J.J. Dillon being a podcast. Oh, true, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, in his, maybe in his, if he does, if he's done this episode, maybe he explains that. Yeah, that would be that interesting. Or not. I should look up that, yeah. <laughs> he was very smooth in his delivery. Like, he yeah. got through oh, everything. Yeah. There wasn't oh. any any breath wasted on anything. He made a, a statement and, and seamlessly switched to the next uh, hype. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just goes through it nice and fast, but it doesn't feel like he's cramming a lot in there. Unlike the uh, Garvin promo where you have the <laughs> yeah. sense of, oh my gosh, there's so much in there. It feels like Dylan is smoothly making his points, like you said. There's no urgency. And, it's just, yeah. just flowing smoothly and, uh, you know, he doesn't really spend too long embellishing anything. He just makes makes a poignant point and moves on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad to see Dylan's work. I've not seen, I had not seen much of Dylan before we started doing this show. And I think he's really, really good as... Yeah kind of the the heel manager but also like he has this like businessman feel about him that, for sure yeah and he, he he's, he's a great character honestly yeah he's just around for a long time at wcw i don't think even until the end maybe i'm not sure exactly when he yeah. but he stops being a manager character he becomes essentially the authority figure character and they have to confront a wrestler about this or that he's the yeah. guy that that's spokesperson which Obviously, he's a good pick for that. Yeah, but when he does that, he doesn't feel as much like the J.J. Dillon character is just kind of the boss, oh, I yeah. guess. So oh, yeah. this this feels different from those oh, yeah. times, and it's cool to see. I mean, you can see why they kept him around for that role. Oh, yeah, he does yeah. these promos so well. 
even when they're giving him weird nonsense to talk about in the later years of WCW, he makes it seem legit. Yeah. That's his man delivery. We go back to Tony and JR, who talk a little bit about J.J. Dillon's confidence and Dusty's habit of turning back challenges in his career. And then we go to the ring for our next match. Our next match is the total package Lex Luger with J.J. Dillon versus Dusty Rhodes in a steel cage match for Luger's NWA U.S. heavyweight title. Lex comes out with a very Tully-esque robe and some hard rock music. Dusty has a headband, t-shirt, and music that sounds like a training montage from an 80s uh, sports film. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of a weird entrance for the dream, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) If Dusty loses this match, he can't wrestle for 90 days, and Johnny Weaver will be holding the key to the cage. I think we can agree that that's a better role for Johnny Weaver than backstage interviewer. Yes, or commentator. (laughs) Yeah. Going into 87... Ole Anderson partly retired. He he didn't officially retire. He he'd come back a couple times later. But so they need someone new for the spot. They put Tully in the tag spot, and now they need someone filling Tully's role in the mid card title holder challenger spot. They brought in Lex Luger from the company, originally the Luger, as we yes. saw in the NXW network. Yeah, there's an awesome awesome promo we should talk about. That there's oh yeah, awesome promo when he's first introduced, where he's introduced as the Lugar. The Lugar, pronounced as Lugar, not Luger. Correct. And uh, he is standing there wearing the most awesome like '80s sunglasses. They are huge. Yeah, they're like the big like policeman sunglasses. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's terrific. And it's, they just brag about how much you can bench press and all that. Yeah, he just stands there looking muscly for the entire time. It's great. Yeah. So yeah, the build up to this uh, is obviously part of the Dusty Horseman feud, as is sort of mentioned before. What they do is they bring in yeah, another person, legendary Japanese wrestler Hiro Matsuda, who is of course known as the Shogun, because he's from Japan. Yes. The story they build up is that he is the master of the Japanese sleeper hold, which is apparently different from the regular American sleeper hold for reasons I can't explain, nor do they. So in the build up to this, he attacks Johnny Weaver, who is the guy who's sometimes credited as venting sleeper hold. It's not hundred percent clear on that because it's wrestling; no one's really clear. So he attacks him with the Japanese sleeper hold until he's apparently bleeding from the mouth somehow. In storyline, he's the one brought in that's supposed to be training Luger for this match. Luger is doing this weird sort of humble brag thing about Hiromatsuda. He describes him as sitting in dingy hotel rooms, eating, chewing on ginger, uh, ginseng root, excuse me. And he also brags that he's, quote, never seen him sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a little weird. Originally, the stipulation was that Dusty couldn't wrestle uh, in the U.S. for a month, but then it changed to anywhere for a month because Dylan brags about how, you know, he's a big star everywhere and you guys promote everywhere. It's got to be the whole world and it's got to be 90 days. Yeah. I'm still not clear how that would end his career if he took a three-month vacation. Yeah. Especially because he's still the booker of the company. <laughs> um, but apparently it's super important okay. for the storyline of this match. <laughs> So it's the young lion and the old lion essentially challenging to retake the throne. All right. Luger, I have to say, looks absolutely amazing here. Oh, yeah. He is ripped. He's handsome. He has great hair. It is very easy to see why they strapped a rocket to this guy over the last year. He absolutely has the look. Mm Mm-hmm. 
tentative circling and lockups to start, and both land a few blows. Lex taunts Dusty with a flex to show off his muscles, and then jiggles his pecs. That's one of his weird and actually very impressive skills. I still don't know how you actually do that. <laughs> yeah, there's some muscle you have to train for that. Yeah. Actually. Practice. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Dusty grins and does a little strut in reply, then flexes bicep. Not quite as impressive, Dusty, but good try. A for effort. Dusty takes control with some punches, then grabs the Weaver Lock, a variation of the sleeper hold. JR says that the Weaver Lock can be effective even before the opponent has been weakened, unlike many other holds, and Luger rushes through the ropes to get free. Luger fights back, but misses a massive screaming elbow drop, and Dusty starts working the arm with hammer locks and clubbing blows, as Tony builds up that Dusty is teaching Luger that those big arms of his can be a source of pain as much as power. Luger gets free briefly, but dives shoulder-first into the turnbuckle when Dusty dodges in a painful-looking spot. Luger finally manages a knee strike to get free, and aggressively stomps Dusty, then smashes him face-first into the cage a few times. Dusty is, no surprise, bleeding badly. Luger controls, and a second monster jumping elbow drop works. Dusty surprisingly mostly lands a dropkick to try to get back, but it takes more out of him than Luger, and Luger hits a backbreaker and tries the torture rack. He can't quite get Dusty positioned right and stumbles to the corner. I'm not actually sure if that was a blown spot or how it was planned to go, honestly. Yeah, they covered so well, I'm really not sure either. Yeah, and he behaves like it was part of the match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like that was the plan, but... Yeah, attacking the arm, then you gotta try and lift him. Then Yeah, yeah. Luger works Dusty's arm with wrist locks and arm locks and uses the ropes for leverage, as JR notes that he doesn't need to do that because he's so powerful, so he's taking shortcuts. Dusty struggles, but Luger keeps forcing him back into the arm lock. Eventually, he moves to punches and snapping Dusty's arm on the ropes, but Dusty starts yelling at him for more and manages to catch him with a slightly awkward DDT for two. Lex gets caught in the weaver lock again in the center of the ring, and Dusty jumps on his back to keep the hold on. Luger supports Dusty's weight easily. Dylan hits Weaver with a chair and takes the key, but Hebner catches him trying to come in only to get hit by Lex and Dusty in a way that the camera mostly misses, sending all three down. Dylan hurls a chair over the top of the cage, but as Luger gets up and goes for it, Dusty grabs him and does a better DDT on the chair for the three. Post-match, the crowd cheers as Dusty celebrates with the title and hugs Johnny Weaver, and they leave together with the adoration of the cheering fans. The replay shows more clearly that Lex, with Dusty on his back, sprinted across the ring to Hebner, and (laughs) that knocked Luger and Dusty and Hebner all down. It's a cool spot, and I'm glad one of the cameras caught it. Yeah. (laughs) So I like this a little better than last year's match, um, the Dusty and Tully match, mostly because it's not stuck with the gimmick of one strike makes you bleed and that Mm -hmm. match thing. It's one of the ones where I think they get everything right for the most part, they make Luger look strong and powerful and really play up the strength, but also an experience aspect. Dusty with his experience and his ability to strike well with certain attacks. Just for me, he doesn't... It's clear he can't do anything he used to be able to do. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's just how that works. I'm not sure I like him as much in this spot because it's not fully there. I don't know. I'm not trying to be too mean to the guy. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know. I don't get as much of a Dusty match. Like, I really like 84th match before the we were the end of that and 85's match really solidly. Just, I don't know. I don't like these as much. I don't know if it's just, he's not doing as much or what. It feels like he's moving t- more towards the dusty that 
you'll see in the future where he's the older wrestler that doesn't have a lot in the ring anymore, but is still the good character. Yes. That, where that's the a... previous ones, it felt like we were seeing a different side of Dusty that we didn't... Exactly, yeah. That's what I was trying to say, yeah. I, I can see that, yeah. That said, I, I am happy that the finish covers Luger pretty well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not Dusty annihilates Luger and makes him look bad. It, it really is that the mistimed interference is used by the experienced Dusty to win the match. Yeah. So I like it in that regard. I didn't like the match, but they, I hoped I would. Okay. I know, I know it's his name, Lex Luger, um, but he looks like one of the super villains from one of the uh, Superman movies, the one that's like created from his hair and he comes back. Nuclear, like nuclear, nuclear man, yeah, right? He looks like that. And I'm yes. like, okay, he does look like an awesome Superman villain. If it helped, uh, it did also come out in 1987. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I did not hear them call it a weaver, weaver lock. For whatever reason, I thought it was like lever lock, like a lever. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Dusty has like a lever 2000 or whatever, you know, he's going to pimp it out later. Um there, there were some lulls in it. I know there was a lot of um, going back and forth, you know, trying to work up the arm. Uh, it seems like they were just walking around finding new ways to <laughs> to tug on 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 Dusty's arm. But uh, yeah, I I did like the finish though. I, I actually thought when he threw the chair over, not that you know it was as good as the throw as the uh, the racket from a different match. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually thought the chair landed on Dusty and I thought that's what he was going for. You know, like he was just <laughs> trying to pelt him with something because it's like like laying right next to him when they cut back out. So I thought oh. I bumped him. Oh, uh, okay. But I mean, that makes more sense in my mind at the time because I was like, okay, well, he wasn't trying to give the chair to Dusty. Obviously, he was just trying to hit it with, with it when he was yeah. down. It reminded me of, I forget which, which game it was, one of the, I want to say the GameCube ones where you could throw all the weapons. Yeah. And they had full which one that, that was. Yeah. You could you could throw chairs in the ring and it would hit people and like knock them down. Was... Yeah, we constantly interrupt like uh, holds by just chucking a chair or a trash trash cans. We were fond of. Yeah, throwing, yeah. I think <laughs> that was pretty bigger hitbox. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. I had a lot of fun with this one. I really really like this. Uh, Luger hasn't been in the company too long, obviously, but he has an impressive look, and he actually wasn't too bad in the ring. He had some good strikes and a few very impressive power moments. There is quite a lot of reliance on punches and on the kind of basic arm work. It's kind of hard to tell if the punches at least are more the cage match atmosphere or if that's actually Luger's style. Hmm. I'd have to watch him in the future and see if, see how that works out. Dusty still feels more than capable of getting the crowd into a match, sure. and he was a great face for Luger to show his stuff against. You knew for sure there was going to be a good crowd reaction, yeah. and I think that helped keep the match energetic. Both did a lot of character work and selling, more on that later, to keep mm-hmm. even the lengthier holds interesting. I feel like the crowd was actually really into Lex. Uh, yeah, I got a little of that too, actually. They they want to cheer him, and they're only not cheering him because he's against Dusty Rhodes, I think. Right. And they actually, at one point, I think it's after he slams Dusty into the cage for the first time, they actually do cheer him briefly, and then remember who he's facing and start mm-hmm. booing. <laughs> Clearly, lexually uh, frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> when you can get cheered, even as the man threatening to, quote unquote, end Dusty's career and or suspend him for 90 days, you've really got something. I mean, the crowd loves Dusty. So if you can get cheered even against him, you're, you know, you're you're doing well. Yeah. So, but yeah, he looks good and has a lot of charisma. Dusty gave him quite a lot in this match, and I think it helped build him up quite a great deal. It allowed Luger to show his power and look good even against a former world champion. Mm-hmm. 
And the ending, like you mentioned, Al, was built really nicely to not really harm Luger. Yeah. Even though Dusty beats him. It actually feels like a really nice setup for a Luger face turn. He is a capable wrestler, but inexperienced. He gets in trouble through through his inexperience and trying to take shortcuts and through taking bad advice, basically, or bad uh, interference on his behalf. So it feels like if he realizes that he's strong enough to do it on his own, that you can have a really effective face turn for him from this from this match. You could like see that angle coming, which was cool. <laughs> I can't let this go by without mentioning Luger selling. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> My notes. I don't know if you were if you were getting this too, John, as the match goes on. But Luger sells super over the top way too loud to be real like shouting at the top of his lungs for every single move that hits him Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is something that will continue for most of his career quite wonderfully oh yeah all i can guess is that when he was in training people kept telling him now lex make sure that people know that the moves hurt and he really took that to heart so anytime he's hit it's like whoa ah oh it's like the loudest selling in the universe. It's terrific. And amusingly, sometimes Lex attacking and Lex being hurt sound identical. Yeah. <laughs> he has an angry cry while like charging into a clothesline and uh, as he hits you, yeah. Well, you experience the the same force against your body. It's just well, yeah, yeah, an opposite yeah. reaction. Or Luger selling in this case. Yeah, but he'll just he'll just like he'll run at someone in his clothesline and go like, Whoa as he as he hits them and then they'll slam him and he'll go, Whoa, <laughs> Yeah, no, di- no distinction whatsoever. None. Yeah, there's there's places online I think where you can find like Lex Luger selling supercuts, where uh, it just like gets every instance of of Luger selling in at least one match mm-hmm. or across the show. It's it's brilliant. I know OSW Review did one uh, at some point. That they was, done a, that yeah, was they great. did a couple of those. Yeah, it's it's some of the best stuff. I have a real soft spot for Lex as a performer and. He never feels perfectly polished, no. but he never feels bad, and his flaws are, I think, just as entertaining as what he does well. Sure. <laughs> so, everything he did seemed to be, other than you know some embellishment, seemed well executed. Yeah, like like you said, you it would be hard to you'd be hard pressed to find out if you know figure out if the strikes or or the moves are really what the character is supposed to be, you know, or if it's just because of the match because he does everything pretty well. Yeah, yeah. He seemed uh, really engaged with this one, too. I, I I thought he had a lot of good energy. Yeah. And that, that final spot that we got to see on the replay of him literally running across the ring with Dusty Rhodes hanging on his back mm-hmm. was pretty awesome. He clearly has the power. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Luger leaves a horseman in December. Okay. And comes a face. I kind of saw that coming, yeah. Really, yes. He, him, and Wyndham form a tag team, sort of um, awkwardly called the Twin Towers. Wasn't awkward at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's awkward for me to say in 2018, not yeah. 1988. And in follow-up to Dusty Rhodes as TV champion, he stripped the title in April for an incident involving uh, Jim Crockett. Okay. At least it's not in January. No, it is not. <laughs> we go back briefly to Tony and JR, who asked how that last match can be topped. JR says we're about to see if Ric Flair and Ron Garvin can, and find out which is glory-bound. Tony says that five years ago, we saw Ric Flair walk into a cage as the challenger at Starcade and walk out the champion. Will that happen again tonight? They can't wait to find out. 
I thought that was a great callback on Tony's part. The talking back to the the initial Starcade yeah, and yeah. that Rick was in that same role there. So I thought that was that was really terrific. So our final match is the Hands of Stone, Ron Garvin, versus the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, in a steel cage match for Ron Garvin's NWA World Heavyweight title. Behind the scenes, people at the NWA and Jim Crockett felt like they needed to mix things up with Ric Flair. They felt like it would be a stronger story if instead of being the defending champion, as he's been in the last few years, if he'd come and have a big moment where he wins the title again. So apparently they went to a lot of people asking them that they'd be willing to win the title, knowing they only hold it for a couple months. A lot of people turned them down. It's not clear all the names, but I'm sure there's a list going around for that. Ron Garvin said, yes, I'm cool with that. I want to be a world champion. So in September, he wins the title in a match mentioned by Jimmy Garvin in Detroit off of Ric Flair as part of the Forestman feud. Now he's the champion going in. Ric Flair's a challenger. It's notable that Ronnie Garvin asked for the Cade stipulation so he can keep the Forestman from interfering. Makes sense. Yeah. Although, obviously, he didn't. He had no way of watching the match just happen where they did still interfere in the cage match. Yeah, but it went against him, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, it's all logic in his part. Yeah, it's just funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting that you kind of approach someone and say, hey, champion for two months, and, you know, he was willing to say yes to that. And in this period, that's a very, like, short title reign, honestly, because yeah. I don't think there's even, like, another big show between September and Starcade at no. that point. Just so, shows, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's not like, you know, these days you can have someone who's champion for two months, and that means he's, you know, he wins the title and he gets at least one good title defense before before he has to go on. And you've got all this TV, and he's probably having matches on there too, and all that stuff. Where during this period, it's you went, you won the title, you weren't probably even seen that much on TV before. No, you know, you reached Starcade, and and now you're losing it, you know, potentially. So. I think it's actually it's it's pretty big of him to go for that plan. I think, yeah, because really. that's the sort of thing that can turn you into this like joke champion or something. But yeah, hopefully he got some good publicity out of it. You know, uh, yeah, even if it's not just uh, good faith with the company. Yeah, it definitely goes on to have I, I know more of a career, and he does like some stuff in the WWF eventually as well mm-hmm. too. And so he's he's I think he's fairly well regarded over the years. So yeah. Ric Flair has an awesome white and silver feathery robe tonight, but kind of a strange version of his usual theme. I'm not sure what was going on, but it felt more synthesized than usual. Yeah, I thought that too. And the rhythm felt a little off. I don't I don't know. Just such a recognizable song that you think it's it's weird when they do a different version of it, you know? Yeah, like ELO did the cover of his song for it or something. <laughs> the flashing lights looked awesome with his entrance, though. The lighting oh, yeah. was great. He didn't have the awkwardly timed in place flash paper they used last yeah time. yeah true yeah yeah uh, just another example of i think the presentation on this show got a major upgrade the, sure. the lighting was terrific garvin has yet more generic music kind of wonder if stuff got replaced on the show on the network again he just has a little red towel over his shoulders and the title much less interesting entrance gear it definitely made Flair look like the much bigger star, honestly. He gets the robe, the music, the lights, all the pomp and circumstance. Ron Garvin walks out with nothing of any real interest. He does look good with the belt, though. It's, I think it puts you part of his character. He's the yeah. no-frills guy. He's the guy who comes in and punches you and does all that. Yeah, it just feels like they could have done something. This guy is the champion, you know? Yeah. 
I would have done like a did like a real boxing style entrance. Yeah, like yeah. A, like it was the Rocky, road. Rocky movies. Yeah, yeah. Ron actually gets booed by a portion of the crowd too. I heard that too. Yeah. yeah. The two start out struggling for leverage, and Ron takes control after countering Flair's chops with some punches in the corner, and it gets the crowd more solidly cheering for him there, actually. They go back and forth with more striking, but some in the crowd go back on him and seem to start chanting, Garvin sucks. I'm not sure if I misheard the chant. I didn't actually think that sucks was a thing in 87, but that's what it sounds like they're saying. I hope. (laughs) Garvin knocks Flair down and gets some loud cheers again in response, so it's kind of weird, confusing crowd reactions on this one. Overhand chops from Garvin earn a Flair flop, and he counters a Flair charge into a back body drop before starting to work the arm. Tony and JR call Ron a complete offensive wrestler. Flair tries to fight back as the crowd goes back and forth, but Garvin keeps control and hits the Garvin stomp, a series of vicious stomps around Flair's whole body. That earns him the crowd's love again, but after another exchange of blows, Flair slugs Ron in the crotch and he topples. An inverted atomic drop and a couple woos get the crowd on Flair's side again, and he beats up Ron and starts working the leg as the crowd gives its own woos. Flair hits a shin breaker and gets the figure four, and JR notes that Ron's leg will snap before Ron will say he quits. Tony agrees with that one. Flair gets a few two counts and yells at ref Tommy Young to count Ron down, and Young tells Flair Ron won't quit. Ron turns the hold over, and Flair gets the ropes, and Young untangles the two. Ron is writhing in pain, and Flair beats him up some more and does a call-and-response woo with the crowd. <laughs> thought that was oh, kind of yeah, cool. Yeah. He goes to run Ron into the cage, but Ron keeps blocking and eventually reverses to smash Flair into the cage instead a few times to get Flair bleeding. Then he bites Flair in the forehead. You. <laughs> Flair tries to escape over the cage top, but Ron catches him and knocks him back down, then stands on the top rope as Flair gets up. Tony notes that Ron won before with a big sunset flip off the top, but Flair keeps his distance and Ron just has to come down. Flair fights back, but going up to the top rope works just about as well for him as it usually does, (laughs) and Ron gets his own figure four as we get a nasty shot of Flair with bloodied head and blood in his mouth. The crowd's reaction is split as Flair makes the ropes and Young breaks the hold. Ron works Flair's leg and lands more hard strikes and blocks and reverses more attempts by Flair to ram him into the cage. Ron gets a few close two counts with a crossbody and a backslide, and hits Flair with hard strikes. Flair climbs to get away again, and Ron knocks him down, then goes for the sunset flip. Flair manages to kneel on top and grab the ropes, but gets caught by Young, and Ron completes the flip for two. The two keep struggling, and Ron finally lands his big right hand for two. Ron tries a whip, but Flair reverses and finally manages to smash Ron into the cage right on the steel pole in the center, earning the three count and the win. Post-match, JR builds up that this was one of the most physical battles that he's seen, and Jim Crockett and J.J. Dillon accompany Flair as he celebrates with the title and leaves. A dejected Ron Garvin leaves the ring slowly in the aftermath. Um, I'm kind of torn. I mean... We hearing you describe it again reminds me you got more out of it, but for me, I wasn't super engaged in it. There wasn't a lot of depth to me for it. It was a lot of striking. There is some story there. Uh, I've heard them explain what 
move one match before is nice, but as it plays through, I don't know, it, it didn't do as much for me as last year's, even with Nikita Koloff or stuff with Rhodes mm. did for me. I can't explain necessarily what it's missing per se, but it's just something it didn't have that didn't hook me the same way the previous matches had. Okay. That or just the the bar for like Flair matches is so high for me. We've seen know. we've seen a lot of great ones. So yeah, yeah. it's it could also be a factor as well. Yeah, yeah. It's not bad, it's just it's not what I'd hoped it would be. Okay. I like the match. It was a neat role reversal where Flair's the uh the experienced and you have a, a new uh, wrestler in there in that spot. I thought that their back and forth was pretty convincing. I don't know what it is, but it looks like Ric Flair has been working out or something. He looks bigger. Or he, <laughs> I, I, maybe it's just his opponent. You know, it's not. <laughs> you know, that could be I bad. mean, like he he actually looks like he's the more uh, intimidating person in in the ring. Not not because of the way he moves, but I mean, just just visually. I can see that. Yeah, Ron Garvin doesn't have the. The physical presence of like Nikita Koloff for sure last year, so I could see you seeing Rick as kind of the the bustlier guy, which is a which different is thing for Flair. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean that negatively. I just like you no, know, yeah. it's just not yeah. usually the role he he's in. Yeah, I definitely so get that. I think it definitely it it doubles down on that. Uh, you know, like he's a real threat. He's he's experienced, and uh, you know he wants it back. And yeah. uh, they said it was a really physical match, and you know, even though you could tell that they were both exhausted, it didn't get like sloppy. No, it, no. You know, I mean, they they carried it through the whole time, and they didn't do long bouts of uh, just you know, hugging it out. <laughs> yeah. To, to, to get regain some of their composure and and uh, everything. So. Yeah, they keep things moving pretty well. I think overall, don't they? And I noticed that they they actually take time at each of the corners, like you know, not not in a row. Like sometimes it happens, you know, where like dragging someone from corner to corner. But in in the sense that there wasn't a part of the mat that I felt that they just focused on. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, they were they moved around the ring quite a bit. Sure. Yeah, um, I think like you guys were saying, this was a very brawly match, mm-hmm. but it was an exciting one to me. Ron Garvin has some very good-looking heavy strikes that just look like they would hurt. Yeah. And Ric Flair's excellent selling makes him, I think, far more believable as a champion than I would have expected a year ago. Ron came off looking pretty legitimate and battered Flair around the ring at points. And they worked in some very fun spots with Flair trying to just get away from Ron by any means necessary. And um, I like them teasing the history with the sunset flip. That was a, a nice little bit of story building there. Yeah. I love the build to Flair finally managing to throw Ron into the cage. They do a good job of Ron blocking it and blocking it and blocking it and blocking it. And finally, Flair gets it and that gets him the win. So you really felt like it was going to be massive when he, mm. when he, when he could finally manage that. It, it builds it up that you know that's going to be significant if he can finally hit him into the cage. The crowd reaction was odd, but interesting. It was clear that they were more into Flair than Ron at first, but Ron seemed to win them over as the match went on, only for them to turn back to Flair when he had control. So it was kind of a back-and-forth match, not just in the literal sense, but also in the uh, hearts of the crowd as well. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the crowd accepted Ron Garvin as world champ, and I do understand that he doesn't have the atmosphere of the champion, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have any of the flash that crowds are, I think, by this point coming to expect. But he does have a legit tough guy feel about him. And I found him it easy to accept him as being at Flair's level, which really surprised me because all I've seen of him so far is him 
dressing up as a woman and fighting fighting alongside Jimmy Valiant and then fighting Big Bubba Rogers in a match that I didn't really like last year. So I'm not sure that I would ever put the belt on him again, but would I like to see another Flair versus Ron Garvin match? Absolutely. Yeah. And the Garvin stomp is awesome. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Just goes for it at school you know the thing might be might she might have with it is maybe going from one cage match to a second cage match made a little fatigue for me yeah i can see that there's no gap there because i mean they've had other shows where there's two cage matches but they didn't go right from one to the other right yeah because they traded arenas in the previous ones yeah and they spaced them out a little bit as well yeah they weren't switching from two locations so they didn't have something in in one in between to to kind of change it up a little bit yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, now, this obviously didn't do it, and there's other reasons why they didn't, but on a show like this, you can, I would say you could open with a cage match, because you have all the time to set it up, then do your promos, and then end with a cage match. <laughs> obviously, they had the scaffold thing, I understand why they didn't do that, but that'd be one way to get around that issue of having two of the same match type. Yeah, room. I can see that. Yeah, it's always a little bit of a problem when you repeat matches directly it always gets a little bit underwhelming that unless you can do something else to change them up right. and with, and with Dusty and Lex and Flair and Garvin, it really is two of the same type of match in a row. Yeah. So now as the TNA went up even further by doing an entire pay-per-view where it's all <laughs> cage matches. Oh, go. They did several of those. Yeah. Uh, just a little let down from me, but hearing you defend, you know, talk about more, it makes me feel a little better than I did initially. So helps a little bit. The first time I watched it, I think I had the same reaction you were when I did my second watch. I felt like I got a little bit more of, oh, they're building to this. Oh, they're building to this. Mm -hmm. So even though it's brawly, there is like a a story that's being told that they build actually pretty effectively to over the course of the match for me. And I I felt like when I saw that on that second watch, I had a much improved view of this match. I will say another thing that, that does sort of raise a question for matches before and after. So... If throwing the guy intuitively into the pole part of the cage is an instant knockout, why does everyone before and after throw him at the center of the cage where it's all mesh? <laughs> Probably because no one but Ron Garvin is crazy enough to say, yeah, ram my head into the pole. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen Mick Foley have cage matches. Yeah, and he true. didn't do that either. Yeah, I don't know. Every match after, there should be people trying to throw out the pole. And maybe don't do it, but yeah. like, hey, look what happened. I won the world title by doing this. You should do it too. Maybe it's like Flair's dive off the top rope to win the world title that they do try and do it, but it gets countered every single time yeah. from now on. <laughs> yeah, like it, I don't think he does, but like if Ric Flair next year has a cage match and tries it again and it fails, I will forgive that. Okay. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. <laughs> I, I don't think it was fatiguing for me to have a uh, cage match after cage match. However, I, w- I want to see Flair in a different match. Mm-hmm. You know, I was expecting something a little bit different, but I do enjoy Flair, so... It's not yeah. Of yeah. Yeah. There's really not a lot with Ron Garvin, Ric Flair, but Ric Flair obviously continues his excellent world title uh, holding for quite a bit of time. As Ron Garvin, he goes through some storyline stuff into next year '88, turns heel, reteams with Barry Windham at one point, but leaves a pay dispute in August. Okay. It's kind of a it's kind of a shame to see him go because. With this one, I, I felt like I actually got a little bit more of what he was about than in the previous mm. uh, things. I would have liked to see more Ron Garvin, I think. Not necessarily at the world title level again, but just he seems like he could be a dependable yeah. character on shows, and it's a shame to not see him. But it's funny because we had different reactions to the previous matches he had. Right, right, yeah. So for me, I thought that he really fit the match with Dick Bubba. 
and I fully understand the issues you have with it. Um, so then seeing Boba Flair felt out of place to me. I mean, it's <laughs> part of it as well. Yeah, it's interesting. We we kind of had we we like reversed views between the two shows there. Yeah. <laughs> we cut to Tony and Jr. And Tony quickly wraps up the show and throws to a closing video package. And Stargate eighty seven is done. So overall thoughts on Stargate eighty seven? It definitely flows so much better than last year's show. <laughs> we don't have the third stop of. Four like four different video packages. I felt like. Oh my gosh! Yes. Four to a hundred, somewhere in that number. <laughs> I don't know if the show is a lot shorter. The only issue I have, I talked with Bob about this earlier. So when I watch all the build-up shows, there's stuff that's built up to on those that has no appearance whatsoever on this. Mm. Like I mentioned, Mike Rotunda not appearing at all. It's a couple of huge that seem like they're building up towards Darkade, and maybe they learn. I learned a lesson from last year. They just cut Starcade down in length, which is I'm not complaining about necessarily, but. They decided we could only have this many matches, and they had to essentially you had to determine the fat. So, like they build up a match for the UDF title tag titles that's not on here, and Paul Jones has a whole separate feud going with that to be valiant, which is also not in here at all. He's just not mentioned or shown. Not so not saying I wanted the show to be forty minutes longer with extra matches, but it's interesting seeing them build up the show normally, but then cut them down, yeah, for a reasonable length like they did this year. So it's a positive and negative for me. But yeah, no, it was an easy watch. My only issue was that nothing stood out as much as in previous years. Because, you know, with 83, 84, and 85 a little bit, there's real highs and lows. Mm-hmm. For me, this is all, there's no real lows, which is good. But there's no real super highs either. It feels very even. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Arnatoli are great, but they don't have the sort of era match defining thing they had last year so yeah it's not a, not a bad show at all it's just maybe not as memorable plus you have yeah, there's a lot of aspects that make it not as memorable i would say having flair in the ron garden match which is very forgotten about match by most people even people that remember love and watch these time they know flair and dusty but this one i don't know it doesn't seem to hold up as well to people in general mm-hmm it's a good midpoint show, but it's yeah, there was no highs and no real lows for me. So that's that's my take on it. Okay, I thought it was easy to watch, especially against last year's. Uh, yeah, didn't take three um, attempts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, self-imposed intermissions. Um, <laughs> you know, I think they got a handle. Like everyone has entrance music now. There's a little bit more production here and there, like Bobby had said earlier. Even their tables have a little bit of uh, forethought to them. They're just mm-hmm. not, you know, they serve some purpose for branding. Yeah. I think they did a good job of doing introductions and showcasing new wrestlers. Uh, it was nice to see Sting, even if it was only a, a small sampling. Yeah. Even though, like, you normally there would be, like, this this intense blood feud that they always try to build up before each match. I think that, that um, a lot of the promos were very positive even about you know it didn't matter who who was fighting who you know they weren't there was no villains uh yeah. other than the way they got their their way to victory so to speak mm-hmm. there was nothing like magnum and versus tolly for example yeah right which is a little did a, did a blood feud yeah right and you know like even the show of sportsmanship with the uh the lower in this case high blow because he was jumping yeah that's true <laughs> you know like it you got the sense that there was a little bit of honor between combatants, and uh, 
I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I really appreciate it. It was something different yeah. than than uh, normally where they would just take advantage. And like you say, it was a little uncharacteristic when he just, you know, didn't extend that to him, you know. The posturing of it being grandiose like the Olympics and stuff is a little a little corny to me, but you know, <laughs> at the same time, you know, you you're gonna you're gonna talk up your own show. So Yeah, yeah, of course. Other than the technical finish, which I'm I'm d I'm done with. I I'm just done. The the whole like, oh you won. No, he won because of the thing. I I, I know that's gonna happen a lot. Yeah. Uh, um I thought it was a good show. Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing it didn't have was like like that that certain quirkiness. Other than the 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 promos, the you didn't have like the random people flying in cages above you or people tapping on the glass and and all the other. I was hoping for more like flaws. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz those are entertaining too. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed this show. I'm not sure if it might partially be that it's just so much shorter than last year with about an hour and a half less length and <laughs> uh, five fewer matches, but the whole thing just feels like it's put together better. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really easy watch. Why do they still have a scaffolding match, though? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's not one next year, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I don't see the appeal now. <laughs> <laughs> The whole thing just feels like it was put together better. It's a really easy watch with no real slow points. There's only one match that stumbles, and that one is due to what looks to have been a legit injury, so yeah. it's kind of understandable. The matches all felt pretty important to me. They all got time to develop. The presentation made the wrestlers really feel like stars, and the lighting got a huge upgrade this year. That's so amazing to see from the previous years. Yeah, there's no dark void of space surrounding the wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. From last year's show. But, I mean, just like the entrance lights for the wrestlers yeah, yeah. make it feel so important. It's really cool. The show feels bigger and more important, and I didn't feel like there was anything on it that was wasted space this year. Yeah. The generic music still hurts, but I think that's more of a WWE Network dubbing thing than than on the original show. Yeah. So. I'm so glad that we had more interviews this year. Not only were they hilarious and awesome, but I I missed those in previous years. The the, the pre match interviews, the post match interviews, you know, what, whatever. It's just like varying quality aside, they did a lot to build up upcoming matches and to reinforce match storylines afterwards. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate we didn't get to hear from Flair or Dusty. Yeah, um, I I do miss those, but what we did get helped a lot. And I, again, have to say, I love hearing wrestlers talk about each other's matches. It makes everything feel bigger and more interconnected. It feels so much more important when people acknowledge what's going on outside their own point on the show. Yeah. The camera work really, really suffered this year. Yeah. It seems like every match I noticed at least some points where we entirely missed an important spot, either due to a cameraman being out of position or due to a cut on, cut to the outside of the ring at the wrong moment. Also, we lost Skycam. Oh, yeah. We lost our, what was it, 75 feet in the air yeah. face down cam? I hope they bring oh, it back at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so there's moments where I wasn't quite sure what happened in the ring and had to hope they'd show a different angle in the post-match replay, and that should never happen. The story of the match needs to be clear, and good camera work is a big part of it. And unfortunately, that's something that continues to be a struggle for the Starcades. Yeah. Um, one minor note that I really appreciated, almost every match had an announcement about how much time had gone by and how much time remained in the match. Yeah. Not just the one with the time limit draw. 
That's true. So that's how you do it. If you make time limit announcements for every match, it's much less obvious when you're going to do a time limit draw, and the fans don't see those coming a, coming a mile away. It also makes it feel a little bit more sports, which I think is the atmosphere I kind of like it to have. Tony and JR worked really well together, I thought. Um, yeah. They were a great announced team, and I think actually they're my favorite announced team so, that we've had so far. They really had some good discussions during the matches. They helped get the story across. They helped build up subtle points that I wasn't noticing at first from just the the match work, but you know they kind of called out points over the course of the show, and they really seemed to kind of you know, like to kind of like play off each other well and have good discussions it didn't feel like one was trying to make this point and one was trying to make this yeah. point. they they melded together and, and really worked together on the show so i'm not sure how many times we get to see them working together over the course of our run i don't know but they uh, yeah, they were a good announced team I, I liked that a lot overall really good show it seemed to drop almost every single flaw from the previous show except for the bad camera work mm-hmm and it's an easy, quick watch, and I can wholeheartedly recommend it. Like you said, it's, it's maybe a little more even and not huge up points, but there's no bad points, and it's it's an easy, quick watch. So Yeah, I can agree with that. All right, time for Match of the Night and MVP. Al, you want to go first? Sure. Um, if it weren't for the finish, it would be Arnotelli versus the Road Warriors. So for me, the one I liked the most, felt the most fully formed, had a solid ending and just went all tied together was actually the Nikita Terry Taylor match. Okay. Like I said, it it really came down to the finish for me. That said, my MVPs I'm I keep going back and forth. I'd probably go Road Warriors. <laughs> I was trying between picking Road Warriors or Aaron Tully. I feel like Road Warriors really shine a lot in that match. I then they do would be a match yeah, yeah. Not that. So yeah. I'd say MVP would for me the Road Warriors. Do you feel like one of them is something you is one you could call out higher than the other, or that it's them even? In a match like this, it's hard to really separate them. I would say. Yeah. I I don't mind ducking them as a group. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, John, match of the night and MVP. Uh, match of the night is is the Road Warriors versus uh, the Horsemen. I uh, I'm going to ignore the whole thing where they they change the technology. It, yeah. I, that was the timeline I liked. And it was good. Fair enough. And my MVP, uh, even though I thought uh, Dusty was amazing, Flair was amazing, uh, Garvin, I, I'm going to choose Nikita just because of his promo and what he did in his match. Okay. Fair enough. So, yeah, yeah. It's memorable. I, I watched that promo more <laughs> than any, <laughs> anything else in the show. It's it's terrific. I'm going to go back to watch that one again at some point. Definitely. it's 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 hilarious and just awesome. And it, it it's actually like really feel good too, which yeah, is yeah. which is neat. Yeah, yeah. Sure. All right, match of the night. I had a really really tough time with that. Um, yeah, I, I think we had seven matches on this show. Four of them are in my running for match of the night: Nikita versus Taylor, Arn and Tully versus the Road Warriors, Dusty versus Luger, and Ron Garvin versus Ric Flair. I loved all of those. I had a lot of fun watching all of those. I keep going hard, back and forth, and it's, it's kind of hard to pick. Don't be mean now. That's my stick. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I think I'm going to go with Arn and Tully versus the Road Warriors. Oh, I'm going to agree with John on that. Uh, Do you want me to switch? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I don't mind agreeing with you. It's fine. Okay. Something's wrong. <laughs> Couple minor botches aside and, and the questionable ending aside, it felt like the most varied of the matches to me. 
It has a good mix of power moves, brawling, technical wrestling, Weasley heel work, and the carrying forward of the Anderson legacy with excellent targeting of Hawk's leg. The other matches are very close, but they all lean a little bit too much into one part of the match. Well, this one just achieves, I think, a perfect balance. It's a darn close thing, though. I could Ask me another day, and I'll say another one of them, I'm sure. Sure. MVP, I had a tough time on this one, too. There's a ton of great performances, a lot of people worthy of an MVP choice for various reasons. But I'm again agreeing with John. I'm picking Nikita Koloff. Okay. Nikita has just grown so much as a wrestler. And even if I felt like his match didn't quite have enough of a balance to it, his performance was great. And he's achieved an excellent mix of intimidating atmosphere, power, and genuine likability to me. Yeah, do that. His improvements really stood out. And I felt like this year was the one where I was sure that this is him able to stand on his own. Um, I was genuinely happy to see him perform, and I was sure I was enjoying his performance for his performance, not just for how his opponent was reacting to him. And of course, that promo was so enthusiastic and entertaining that I just couldn't help but be into it, whether or not I could actually understand it. (laughs) There was an energy to him this year that I really, really enjoyed. So we'll say goodbye here to Starcade 87, Chai Town Heat, and or Glory Bound. But we're also saying goodbye, for the Starcade series anyway, to Jim Crockett Promotions. A combination of questionable booking decisions, the UWF purchase, and other out-of-control spending, among other things, have put the company in dire financial straits. And by next year's Starcade, Jim Crockett Promotions will be no more, sold to the Turner Broadcasting System. We'll talk a bit more about that next time, but for now... I wondered if either of you had thoughts on what you saw of Jim Crockett Promotions' version of the product. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to call out on these shows that we've watched so far? Um, Like you said in multiple shows, they do a good job of portraying like a sporting event Mm -hmm. rather than a big entertainment event, which they sort of leaned out of this year. But overall, they kept that feel of that being like like watching Super Bowl kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas WBF at that time is big characters action is still good but it's more about the characters than who's what champion fighting for what belt and so on and so forth mm-hmm. it is very interesting that they do it like like i said a sport reporting on a sport rather than cultivating some sort of storyline uh they just let that sort of happen i'm sure that there is writing and everything mm-hmm. oh yeah they are horrible at naming things <laughs> like the <Yeah>. worst <laughs> I, I, maybe that's the era i don't know but it's Two R's? I still can't get over Starcade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I know that that's a copyright thing, but you should just give it up, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't have to misspell a word just to get the, the product. You, you lost your chance. What what if it was Starcade with two C's instead? Starcade? Yeah. Remove <laughs> the K. Why not? <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit troubling to me that they are not able to hold on to this talent. You know, like, you know, mm-hmm. Roddy Piper, a few other things. Like, you know, you talk about... They feature someone, and then not not a month or a month and a half later, they're gone. I, it makes me wonder if we're never going to see these contracts, but if they would be a little bit more tough on people leaving, maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe that's just that's just the uh, business in general, where you know people do switch back and forth, and it's all understood that you're only here while you're making money, or the you know the purse. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. Hey, yeah. There's a lot of that, especially <clears throat> in these shows. But at the same time, you have people that are stalwarts throughout every show. 
Um, mm-hmm. you know, that wrestling night, Dusty and Flair, most of the horsemen are hanging around, but obviously until this one, they hang out through there. But yeah, so it's not every, not like it's everyone's pitching out, but there is a lot of that. It seems like it for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it's oftentimes been some of the guys that we called out as notable in our reviews. We lost, you know, uh, Ricky Steamboat. We lost Greg Valentine. We lost Roddy Piper. We lost uh, Rick Rude. Rude. Such a shame. So He'll be back. Don't worry. So, so yeah, I do get what you're saying. It feels like they, it feels like maybe they're good at building talent, but not good at keeping it. Maybe. Or mismanagement in general. I mean, yeah. you, you have a lot of new talent coming in and you're not going to be able to showcase everything, especially when you're, I don't know if the moving from multiple to, or yeah, didn't they have three one year where they had? No, three? Uh, that was WrestleMania two that did the three ma- oh, three okay. cities, but they, they did two years of two cities. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, you know, I don't know if that's a financial choice or like what they realized they had to scale back, but maybe you're not able to promote individual wrestlers as heavily as you would even like given your TV slot and, yeah. and, and viewership. So people get called out that way. They say, hey, you know, we we didn't have people. People are going to make tea or no, it's not Britain. You know, people just <laughs> were, were going to bed early. And uh, the Nielsen's told us there's a big drop off after 830 or nine o'clock or whatever. People aren't staying up for you. Sorry. Yeah. If they have another deal come by, they might be lenient on and say, hey, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think the city thing is interesting that I've, from what I've read on this one, they they went to Chicago this year, and that's outside their normal area. Yeah, they normally hang around, you know, the the Carolinas, Georgia, you know, that that kind of region. And I think the idea is that they they were really, really, really gunning this year to fully be established as national. Back in January, they go to New York, I think. Yeah, as well. The problem is they're not as well known in in these areas, and they're not as popular in these areas. And the areas where they are popular don't feel that great about them going outside. You know, yeah. I believe this is the first year, I think, since even before Starcade, where they have not had a big Thanksgiving night show at the Greensboro Coliseum. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. You know, because that was a tradition even before Starcade yeah. for the company. So they're trying to go out there, but they might be pushing too fast or too far or alienating their fan yeah, base. Yeah, alienating their fan base. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I wouldn't be like upset if if there was still a show in my area and then they decided to, instead of having three shows in my area they had, you know, two. Yeah. In order to get a new venue or get more people into it. I don't know. I don't think I would well, be upset if, about it. If they'd it. done it as the like last year's show and had it like one of had two arenas, one at the Greensboro Coliseum, the other at Chicago, I think maybe that would have worked better for them. I don't know. But I was trying to think of it more like with uh, sports teams. Like, I know I love the Bucks because they have an interesting record. But imagine if they had went from having, I don't know, 10 home games to having one or zero. And they yeah. had no home games and they played every game away. Or, I mean, you look at it as what happens when a sports team actually moves cities. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the perception I think people had of what was going on with Jim Crockett Promotions at the time is, wait, are they leaving? Is they was looked at maybe less as are they becoming a national promotion and more as they don't want to hang around this area anymore. We built you them know. up and they don't need us anymore. Yeah, if you didn't alienate them, you think that could inflate their pay per view viewership because like I can't go to the the, the show, so I'm yeah, gonna, I'm gonna spend less than I would on a pair of tickets, and me and my buddies can come over and we can watch it. 
I th- I think it would have helped. I think they were kind of screwed this year on pay per view just because of Vince's maneuver. But you gave two thousand and something percent. Yeah, <laughs> two thousand and ten. But yeah, it probably would have helped their their viewership if they had managed to find a way to not push away their existing fan base. I don't know. They should have gave an extra match in pay-per-view. They was either like pre-done or some other thing that, that was exclusive to that. So if you couldn't be there, you know, you're going to get something unique. I, I don't know. It's a little bit yeah. behind the ball here. <laughs> well, like, what's like with video releases, they'd have a, they'd have a dark pre-tape Yeah, match. the dark matches, yeah. And then when you buy the VHS of them, they would put them on there. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, it was actually really cool to see these early days of national wrestling, the learning process, the ups and downs of these early shows. Yeah, It's all been interesting, if sometimes a bit aggravating to watch. <laughs> There's a real sense that the company was figuring out how to do supercards like these. What should be on the show? How many matches should there be? Less than 12. Should there be promos? Yes. What kind of wrestlers do we want to promote? Do we value? There's... <laughs> no. Even little things like how to transition from match to match. Jim Crocker Promotions set the stage with these few shows for how wrestling supercars would be run. I don't think they got everything right. In fact, I think they got quite a lot wrong over the past few years. Yeah. But they still deserve a ton of credit for taking those first steps. And it's fair to question whether the wrestling supercard would exist, at least in its current state, without Jim Crocker Promotions. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the end, the story of Jim Crockett Promotions is the story of a company that tried to do too much too soon and saw events and costs spiral out of its control. It's a sad end to a company that provided years of entertainment for fans. So, it's goodbye to Jim Crockett Promotions. Next year, I wonder if things are going to feel immediately different, or will the same feel return despite the change in ownership? Really interested to find out, actually. That wraps up our review of Starcade 87, Chi Town Heat, and or Glory Bound. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion tonight. And if you've had fun listening to us today, please do help us spread the word about the show. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Ditto. Ditto. <laughs>